Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. So, Steve, I uh, saw off of Twitter that you are working your way through the classic television show WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, what, what, what inspired this deep dive? Well, you know, I think it, it's because I'm an old man and I don't like any television shows right now. I don't know if you have this issue, but <laughs> there has not been a TV show, like a new TV show that I've been excited to watch for a really long time. I'm trying to remember like the last show I got into. I mean, have you gotten in, into any shows? This uh this golden age of television. Everything's so heavy. Yeah. There's nothing just light and fluffy to kick back with, like a like a nice sitcom about a radio station. Well, like Mayor of Easttown, you know, a lot of people were into that show. I just don't I'm not into shows where someone gets murdered and they have to investigate yeah. it. I'm not into that. I've seen enough yeah. shows like that. I'm excited about I think you should leave. Uh, you're not a fan of that show, right? I'm not. We've we've sparred over this before. Yeah. I did not find season one as funny as 98% of online America. I'm excited for that show, but that is those episodes are about 20 minutes long, so yeah, it's not the same thing. But yeah, I mean, WKRP was a show I watched as a kid when it was in syndication, and I've actually learned a bit. Well, this is what I did. I I, I rented the first season on Amazon mm-hmm. and I realized that the version that's on Amazon isn't the one with the songs because like one of the great things about oh, w- they couldn't get the rights. Well, they did, but like basically they put out a DVD in 2014 where they got the rights to about 85% of the songs. And oh, like okay. like one of the cool things about WKRP in Cincinnati, if, if if you don't know the show, this was a sitcom that aired on CBS from I think seventy eight to eighty two, and right. yeah, it's set in this radio station, like a like an album oriented rock station in Cincinnati. Although they also, it's kind of weird because the milieu of it is is that it's this album rock station, but then you know you got Dr. Johnny Fever who's playing rock records, but then you have Venus Flytrap played by Tim Reed. 
and he's playing like soul records on the right. same station. So it's kind of an amazing station because they're playing, you know, like <laughs> there's an episode recently that I watched. They were playing Shakedown Street by the Grateful right. Dead, which I guess is the reason to bring it up on this podcast. When that was a new record, you know, because I think Shakedown Street came out it, later in 78 I think it was yeah. November 78 and we're going to talk about that in this episode a little bit and WKRP started in late 78 so I don't know when that episode aired it might have been early 79 when that aired but that was like a new song but then Venus Flytrap is playing like the Commodores at night <laughs> right. so it's a pretty cool radio station but yeah they use actual songs on the show and I was like well that's a big part of the appeal for me because this show isn't like laugh out loud funny i don't think like sitcoms really age that well usually but i love the milieu of the show it's like they're hanging out at this 70s rock radio station and it's pretty cool and it's actually like pretty well done for like a network show in the 70s like it feels fairly authentic so i can pretend that i'm hanging out at a radio station in the 70s (laughs) and i don't know like if this show were done now it would probably be cool dudes doing a podcast you know, it wouldn't. Oh, that's true. Good point. Has there been a podcast sitcom yet? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, it sounds awful. <laughs> but maybe this will be the first podcast that becomes a sitcom. Right. But two Midwestern dads, right, sitting in their basements, sitting in their basements, <laughs> talking over Zoom about the Grateful Dead, and yeah, it sounds lame, but it's actually totally cool. Right. These are the two coolest dudes ever. And it's so, you know, visually exciting to watch them talk over Zoom and all the antics right. that ensue. We would need like a a sexy Lonnie Anderson type, perhaps. And like a Well, that's what I was thinking is we could we we totally fit the sort of like Kevin James with a r- ridiculously hot wife uh sitcom model, right? <laughs> We're like the schlubby dudes and I don't man, I don't want to compare myself to, to Kevin James. I, I like to think that I'm like Howard Hessman, you know, like Okay, sure. Like the forty something grizzled, you know, facial hair guy who still is kinda of cool. He's seen it all. You know, that's right. And I and I will say that like when I saw this show as a kid, because again I saw it in syndication, I was a little too young to see it when it was on the air. And from the little research I've done about WKRP as I've been watching it, apparently it was a much bigger hit in syndication than when it was originally on. Like, it wasn't really a big hit during its initial run. Apparently, like, they put it up against, like, Monday Night Football for a while, and it was up against, like, Welcome Back, Cotter. Like, it just got terrible time slots. But it was on in syndication, so I saw it, like, when I was 8 or 9 or 10 years old, like, in the mid-80s. And I think it did have an effect on me on wanting to get involved in music, learn about music, because it just seemed like a cool world. Yeah. In a, in a strange way, watching the show now, it is full circle, because now I am in the music business, and I'm doing a, like the modern-day WKRP. So instead of WKRP in Cincinnati, it'd be 36 from the vault in Midwestern America. <laughs> By the way, again, if you don't know this show, amazing theme song. One of the best theme songs yeah. of all time. And then... The closing theme is also awesome. I don't recall the closing theme to WK. Oh, man. We should drop it. We'll we'll drop it in here right now. (laughs) We'll Brian drop it in and post.
kind of sounds like the Who crossed with like late 70s Rolling Stones, like the punk sounding songs on Some Girls. Okay. Cross like with the Who. That's what it sounds nice. like. Yeah, it's pretty. It sounds like late 70s rock. Yeah. Yeah. Totally rocking. And, and then the theme song is like kind of like a Steely Dan sounding song or like a, you know, a soft right. rock type thing. So. Yeah. It's kind of like the. Uh... Like suicide is painless a little bit, or like uh, yeah, yeah. It grooves harder than suicide is painless, though. That's true. That's true. The one episode, I mean, there's two episodes of WKRP that I remember. There's the like famous turkey episode that everybody remembers. Right. I don't know if you've gotten to that one. Oh yet. yeah, that, that's uh, early then, on. That's like the sixth or seventh is episode, it? which is which is strange. Okay. That such a classic episode would be that early, but yeah, it, it, yeah, it's like one of the first episodes of the show. And then have you gotten to the very special, like who fans getting no. trampled at the, uh, in the Cincinnati show episode? Cause that's the other one that I remember very well. well. Yeah. There's an episode, which is amazing that they did this because yeah, like there, there was that disaster at a who concert where 11 fans got killed. That was December of 79. And I think they did the episode like early 1980. So it was like wow. right after. So I'm not that far yet. You know, again, like in the chronology of the show, it's like early 79. So like Shakedown mm-hmm. Street's just come out. Dr. Johnny Fever's dropping the title track on his show. He's grooving hard to it. They don't know about the who yet. I guess <laughs> Keith Moon has just died in the universe okay. of the show. That ha- right. Although that hasn't been addressed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is amazing. And... I did post a video clip on the 36 from the Vault Twitter of Dr. Johnny Fever playing Shakedown Street. And I'll probably do that if there's other dead appearances, which I think there are. I think there's a couple other dead appearances. Somebody mentioned one in uh, in the replies, something related to Disco and the Dead. So yeah. that will be highly relevant to the 36 from the Vault audience. Yeah, it's, it's funny to me, you know, we've learned from this from both that Shakedown Street appearance that you posted and the Grateful Dead joke and All in the Family that our listener found. How often the Grateful Dead would turn up in sitcoms. I think of them having more of a cultural footprint in like the 80s and 90s when that like nostalgia for the 60s was really happening. That was when the Grateful Dead became very symbolic of a, a period in time. So it's funny to see them just being brought up as, you know, a big rock band of the time, even though they never really were commercially that successful, but they were well known enough to be sort of a punchline or, you know, a cultural touch point that people would recognize watching their nightly sitcom. It's part of the genius of WKRP in Cincinnati because the character of Dr. Johnny Fever, played by Howard Hessman, his background is that he was a DJ in LA in the late 60s and he was a big time mover and shaker at that time. But then he said the word booger on the air and they and they <laughs> and, and they fired him. And then he be wow. and then he becomes like this guy who just sort of bounces from you know one market to the next knowing that background for dr johnny fever it makes sense that he would be a dead true believer you know he was right. he was from the late 60s so oh shakedown's coming out oh lol george produced this i i'll give this a shot you know this would be right. this would be pretty sweet and you know on the show he puts it on he starts grooving to it pretty hard so dr johnny fever keeping he's waving the flag at a time, yeah. you know, when maybe people weren't caring as much about Grateful Dead studio albums. But yeah, you know, this ties into, in a roundabout way, to Dick's Picks 25, which we're talking about in this episode, because this is a show from 1978. Mm-hmm. Earlier in 78, it's like in the, I guess, early spring of 78. So WKRP is not on the air yet, but uh, maybe Dr. Johnny Fever 
went from Cincinnati to uh, you know Connecticut to see these <laughs> shows. You know, maybe he's that big of a head. He would have done that, right? Or maybe he got fired for saying booger again and just got kicked down well, yet another. Well, market. no, he'd still be in Cincinnati. At, well, actually, okay. it, again, in the world of the show. They weren't playing right. rock and roll yet. In May of 78, they would have still been an easy listening station because they changed their oh. format in the first episode. You know, Dr. Johnny Fever in his private life, I'm sure, was waving the flag. Maybe the dead came to Cincinnati in 78. I don't know. I don't know if they did. They probably went to somewhere in Ohio. Maybe they went to Cleveland that year. Yeah. They toured a lot that year. Yeah. 78 was a busy year. I'm looking it up right now if there would have been a uh, they must opportunity for a WKRP sponsored show. Or maybe they played Kentucky and like he crossed the border from, you know, because Cincinnati's <laughs> yeah. right on the border. Right. Um, yeah. You can, uh, you can make the jump pretty easily. But yeah, there was a show in Columbus. Okay. And then another one in Cleveland. So they skipped Cincinnati. Sorry. All right. Well, WKRP. Fever would have done a road trip to one of those for sure. And maybe both. Absolutely. Maybe both. So yeah, Dr. Johnny Fever waving the flag. I should also say, too, we're going to dedicate this episode to the memory of Frank Bonner, who played Herb Tarlack on WKRP in Cincinnati. He died the day that we that we recorded this episode, yeah. which is June 18th. So the, the 36 from the vault curse strikes again. Yeah. Shout out to Frank Bonner. I love you. Herb Tarlack, he's like the sleazy guy on the show. The sleazy <laughs> ad executive who's always hitting on Lonnie Anderson. Shout out to him. Dedicating this one to you, Herb Tarlack. Let's get into it. This is 36 from the Vault. I'm Steve. I'm Rob. And we're celebrating 25 volumes of Dick's Picks yeah. today. Woohoo! The Silver Jubilee of Dick's Picks. This, I forgot to say we're presented by Osiris. Next time we'll get it just exactly perfect. <laughs> we love you, Osiris. You're always in our hearts. That that bit of banter makes a comeback in this episode. That, that's, it does. That, that stock Bobby joke that he does a lot in 77. That like whenever they screw up, he says, "Oh well, we'll get it just exactly perfect with the just exactly perfect band or whatever." You know, he does that joke, <laughs> brings it back for one of these shows uh, that we're going right. to be talking about. Dick's picks twenty five. By the way, this is what are the dates on these shows? It's May tenth, seventy eight. May eleventh, seventy eight. First shows in New Haven, Connecticut. The other ones in Springfield, Massachusetts. Have we left the East Coast? I guess we were on the West Coast. We were just at the Cow Palace. Now we've swerved back to the East. The locations of the next volume are are very dear to our hearts. So, oh, that'll be good. That's uh, right. We'll finally get off the coast. But yeah, two two shows only an hour apart in the Northeast. Yet again, insert our usual rant about if you lived in the Northeastern California in the 70s. Well, and we'll get into this in the episode, but like New Haven... Is kind of a New York show, even though that's like two mm-hmm. hours away from New York. 
Like New right. like New Haven is like a lot of people who work in New York City like live in New Haven. Like they'll make I guess that's like a two hour commute one way. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to live in the city or you don't want to live in the city, you got a family now. So you move out to Connecticut. But then you're like, well, how am I going to see the dead? It's like, don't worry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, they got you. The dead come to New Haven all the damn time. So, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're taking care of the commuters. Right, exactly. With this show. And we've got a lot of music to, to get to. We got like four discs to get Two into. Two shows, four discs, five hours. We got like, they, we got uh, like 40 minutes of it, drums to dig <laughs> yeah. into in this episode. No exaggeration. No, Almost 40 minutes of drums. It's like 38 <laughs> minutes of drums. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah unbelievable just tons of drums like what for an average band would be an album length 38 right. minute album yeah that's just the drums just the drums yeah no they uh they went big for volume 25 they did not uh it's like a you know like a comic book issue when you get to those you know number 25 number 50 you always do a double size issue so it's huge the dead decided to to, to throw a little more into this particular release and they have a one-off cover too with the red cover and you got dick on the cover yeah. Not my favorite cover, I got to say. Not a huge fan of this cover. I love the idea of it, paying tribute to Dick. But, you know, just graphically speaking, not that attractive, I don't think. I don't know how you yeah. feel about this. You're going to have to describe this or answer this for me. But I feel like it would be okay if it had, like, some nice texture to it. Like, it, it, it looks like the kind of cover that should be, like, stamped out of wax. Like, the wax around your Maker's Mark bottle. It's just... Like, it should be, like, a, like a gold, like, uh, leaf stamped into red wax. Might look kind of nice, but uh, I don't think they went that big. Just a little boring looking. I mean, it, it's basically one color, and you know, you have the text is a different color. You can't really tell that it's Dick. Again, it's etched in there. I would have rather they almost stuck with the lightning bolt and then like do a cool drawing of Dick with the <laughs> lightning bolt. Right. Continue that era instead of this one off. I don't know. Again, I hate to speak ill of it because it's a great thought and we love Dick obviously on this show. We wouldn't be here without Dick, but you know, just the execution of it. A little disappointing. Not a huge fan of this cover. Yeah. Probably uh stands out when you got them all lined up too, right? Well, not, sticks out like a sore thumb. Not really because like on the spine, it's just it looks it just looks dark. Here I'll hold it up for oh, you. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh nice. So it yeah. doesn't really stand out. And I gotta say the covers from here on out, not very good. We're we're, we're <laughs> a little weak. Yeah. The closing stretch of, of Dick's Picks covers, not my favorite. So, yeah. you know, maybe we won't dwell on that too much <laughs> as right. we move forward. <laughs> Since most people don't even have the CDs anyway. But you know, it's yeah. for the C D heads out there, I like to talk about the art it was the early 2000s it was a dark time for graphic design i think we can all agree <laughs> it's true uh, we were re- so, we, we were reeling from 9-11 all the all the graphic <laughs> artists you know it's like what do we where do we go now it, it, yeah. is graphic art even still a thing you know can, yeah. can we make album covers anymore in this era i gotta say too i don't know like i know some of you out there buy dick's picks on vinyl you know because they get re-released on vinyl this cover would not look good on vinyl mm. i don't think because it just, it just gets blown up right Anyway, let's get to our mailbag segment. And thanks again, everyone who, all of you who have written in. And uh, our email address, if you want to write us, is 36ftvmailbag at gmail.com. So we have three letters here. They're all really good. Yeah, this one is a follow up to something we mentioned on the last show. Was it? Bruce, yeah, Bruce called in to uh, Tales from the Golden Road. Yeah, Bruce, Bruce from Poughkeepsie. Yeah, so we were, we were excited about that, but also a little nervous. And uh, Bruce followed up with some more detail on the call. And uh, yeah, did, did he? Yeah, did he write last 
episode two? Did he say that? How do we know this? We mentioned this before, and we were sort of, yeah, flattered <laughs> that we would get. But did someone else hear him call? I don't think Bruce told us originally. Oh, okay. I think someone, somebody else heard Bruce. I think calling. someone else okay. said, yeah, that's right, because someone said that they heard about our show because someone called in. Oh, awesome. Tales from the Golden Road. And we're like, oh, that's great. But we didn't know who called in. But now we know who called in. And it was Bruce from Poughkeepsie who wrote this email. So that's even better. And he has more details on his uh, Gary Lambert and David Gans interaction about our show, which, uh, <laughs> right. yeah, this is, uh, we'll just read the, let's read the letter okay. here. We'll let Bruce take it away. He says, hey guys, as I am the person who called into Tales from the Golden Road several months ago to talk about your podcast, I thought you'd be interested to know the following. One, Gary Lambert was already vaguely familiar with your podcast, <laughs> although he hadn't yet heard it. Eh, I'll take it. Vaguely familiar. I'll take that. I was like, wow. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, like, what exactly that means. Like, has he heard the yeah. show? Did he see it mentioned in social media? Did someone mm-hmm. say, like, oh, these these millennial idiots don't like... Maybe Lemieux uh, told him about it. <laughs> Lemieux yeah. was like, yeah, I don't know about these guys. But yeah. it's a podcast that exists. <laughs> but anyway, he's vaguely familiar. Number one. Okay. All right. What's okay. next? Uh, number two, I brought up the issue of the double and triple berry and received no discernible <laughs> reaction. <laughs> they're, they're already like, why is this guy talking about this on our show? Yeah. What is this show? Yeah. yeah like, we want to talk about the dead. You're telling us about the Kakamami podcast, double berry, triple berry. Okay. What is this nonsense? Yeah. Anyway, number three, when I asked if there were any Grateful Dead songs where they might likely employ a bathroom break they told me that there weren't (laughs) (laughs) so again strike two maybe two and a half (laughs) not surprised by that not surprised this is probably like sacrilege to them right like what you know you're listening to an album at home you can just hit pause if you have to use the bathroom you don't have to just walk out on the song (laughs) i love I love that you brought that up to them, though. Like, what? Like, what did I, I just wonder, Bruce? What did you think they would say to that? Like, you know, yeah. these two Grateful Dead scholars. It'd be like talking to a scientist and saying, you know, eh, I don't think you need to do the scientific method. It's not, yeah. it's not that important, you know. Uh, like, what, of all the table of elements, which one do you like the least? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hydrogen, right? Uh, who cares about right. hydrogen? Overrated. Get that out of yeah. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, come on. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then finally, uh, four, uh, Bruce litigated this. Uh, when I pressed this about, <laughs> when I pressed them about this, the bathroom break question. You hold their feet to the fire here. He's like, yeah, exactly. I'm not dropping this. And pondered whether it was really necessary to listen to Tennessee Jed or me and my uncle for the 30 millionth time. <laughs> David Gans argued that even in such songs as those, where there is a little to no jamming or experimentation, there is always a possibility that you'll hear something unique in them at any given performance and that you wouldn't want to miss that chance by going to the restroom. <laughs> All my best, Bruce. Which... Uh, um, true. W- would you want David Gans to have a different answer? I mean, that is what no. that, that's what David Gans should say. So I respect exactly. I respect that. You know, he's dutifully listening to every Tennessee Jed because he believes that this Tennessee Jed might, in fact, be like the monolith in two thousand one. It might blow your mind, and that's a great attitude to have. 
You never know. Hey, I mean, I went and sought out the Tennessee Jed from the last volume just to make sure if it was an interesting Tennessee Jed. And it turned out to be one of the most interesting Tennessee Jeds we've heard on this podcast. Uh, so can I just you know, say like we didn't it, it can happen. We didn't really dwell on that enough in our previous episode that we finally got a dick's picks where they cut out the Tennessee <laughs> Jed and then yeah. we made a point of putting it into our episode. You know, right. like, oh. They cut it. Okay, well, let's let's get it in. Let, let's actually get a sound <laughs> clip of this jet right. in there, which I think is one of the most hilarious things we've ever done on this show. Like after all of yeah. the belly aching about Tennessee Jed, <laughs> and then we put Jed <laughs> back in, back in peak. Per- Couldn't go without peak it. Peak perversity for that for yeah. this show. Just beautiful. Our second letter comes from Toby in Nashville, and this is another one of our like musicological. Musicological? Musicological? Musicological. <laughs> Thank you. David David Gans would have got that right. He would have. He would have. <laughs> David Gans, he's he he's like listening to this episode because he's like, okay, finally, I'll check this show <laughs> right. out. And he's already bathroom break this whole episode. He's like yeah, he, exactly. he's gone to the bathroom. He's not coming back. He's shutting us yeah. off by now. But anyway, this is another like musicologist in our listenership who's going to explain something to us. This is very interesting. He's talking about the feeling groovy jam and how he believes it's been mislabeled on a lot of Grateful Dead releases, including Dick's Picks. Was revisiting the Cow Pow 74 show for the ep that drops. Well, he says tomorrow he's talking about the Dick's Picks 24. So that has already dropped. And I thought I'd reach out about something I've been meaning to get off my chest, namely the well-meaning but incorrect designation of feeling groovy to that segment that precedes the I Know You Writer part of the China Writer, which takes place in Dick's Picks 24, as well as previous other volumes of Dick's Picks. In simplest musical terms, the jam in question is a descending pattern that walks from the one down to the five. This is not the same as the Simon and Garfunkel tomb, feeling groovy, which starts on the four, subdominant and walks down to the one now are you with me so far rob (laughs) i'm not totally sure what i'm reading here but i am taking it as an article of faith that toby is leading us to an explanation here the best way to explain this would be to pick up any instrument assume that we're in the key of c and repeat these notes only c b a G. This is the jam in question, the Grateful Dead jam. Now do the same pattern, but start on the F. F E D C. This is what Simon and Garfunkel are doing and feeling groovy, albeit in another key with a capo or a cheater in Bob Weir language. The Dead are also playing a different key, that is the key of D. Thank you for letting me get this off my chest. Toby. Thank you, Toby. Yeah, so I, I understand he, he basically is talking about, you know, it's different notes. It's a different progression that it might mm-hmm. sound similar maybe, but he's right. pointing out that it's not the same and should not be called that. All right, so like a lot of music critics or like the common accusation against music critics, I do not really have any musical ability myself. So I vaguely understand what he's talking about, but not exactly. I I defer to his wisdom on this. I'm pretty sure he's right. And I remember actually a long time ago when I learned that it was a Feeling Groovy jam, like seeking out the Simon and Garfunkel song, Feeling Groovy, the 46 bridge song, street bridge song, whatever the full title is, uh, and thinking it was going to be this awesome track, like the Dead Jam in... uh, in the uh, Dick's Picks 4 Dark Star, uh, and it's it, 
you know, it's not as good. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like it's not. It doesn't scratch the same itch as the way the dead play it. Uh, so it is very. It's a different animal altogether. I mean, are, right? are we sure that like when it's called the Feeling Groovy Jam that people literally are referring to the Simon and Garfunkel song, or could it just be that they're taking <laughs> that title from right. that song and using it here, or that? Someone thought, well, it reminds me of that, even though it's not necessarily maybe the same song. I mean, that that's right. something I'm unclear on. I guess I'm not sure if people are, like, literally mean it's the same song, which you know Toby right. would say is wrong. But maybe it's not that literal. I don't know. Well, and I think all the dead themes are like that. The feeling groovy theme, the mind love body jam, even the tightened up jam from way back in dicks picks 2 are all things that or like the spanish jam which is like the spanish jam right it's like a miles davis song like it's all things that the tapers kind of identified right and said oh yeah they're jamming on this and it became you know the the common wisdom of the dead crowd uh but the band themselves have never said oh yeah we were playing the simon and garfunkel song there i don't think to my knowledge like is the spanish jam is that literally a miles davis song or is it sort of like reminiscent of like something miles davis did yeah it's a track off of sketches of spain supposedly um so i think with all of these two maybe the dead were playing that song but it was like they didn't like sit down and learn it Right. They were just like, this was something I heard on the way into rehearsal, and I kind of remember it goes like this, so let's jam on that for a while, and then it just stuck, is like a chord progression that they would come back to. Like, I don't think they were thinking, oh, we're going to cover that Miles Davis song now. Well, like, Sketches of Spain doesn't have a song called Spanish Jam. You know, there's no song on there called (laughs) Spain or anything. It's just, again, (laughs) you know, I think you hear that, and it's reminiscent of that album. It has the vibe of that album. And tapers heard that, and they thought, "Oh yeah, it reminds me of that." But it's it- there's a specific song though. It's called Solea, which is supposedly right. uh, the the source material for that. Okay. But, uh, again, all it always says supposedly to the point where Mind Left Body Jam has like four different songs that are supposedly the origin of it. Dead fans and even members of the Dead themselves can't agree on where these chord progressions originated. So it's sort of a shorthand. I mean, it's it's also convenient for the Dead because they don't have to give Paul Simon, any uh, songwriting credits right. <laughs> on these uh, dicks picks, and the less money Paul Simon sees, the better, in my opinion. Well, you know, Paul Simon has certainly borrowed music from other people, so you know, he it all evens out sure. for Paul. It um, all comes around. Yeah, I have to say too that I love these letters that break down things musically and explain things in a sort of more technical way. But I think we can all agree that, like, hearing you and me just like shout out notes for two hours would not be a good podcast. It, <laughs> right. It's better if we're just, you know, talking about St. Louis, City of Blues, and uh, all yes, the family. Yeah. And uh, yeah. taking a shot of whiskey and all those sorts <laughs> of things. Probably makes for a more entertaining podcast. I don't know. Perhaps mm. I'm wrong. If you want to read musicological research about the dead, it's out there. You can go to the conference in New Mexico every year and break it down. Uh, and and that, hey, God love those people for doing it. I, I love reading about it, but yeah, that's not our not our approach. And David Gans just shut off our podcast officially. I think at that point. So David, thank you for checking it out. We have one more letter. Do you want to read this one? Yeah, I'll take this one. So this is um, this is Brendan, who I'm guessing is from Connecticut. First, I should say he says, "Hey, Rob, Steve, and Mitch." So now we're three people. Mitch is like a. Yeah, Mitch is sort of person between us, he's, like a composite. He's like Bob from Twin Peaks. He's just like Ooh. this, you know, free floating spirit, apparently. 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's get to the letter here. So uh, it continues, listening to your most recent episode currently, and you brought up the one-off cover art for the next episode, which we just talked about. Uh, I happen to love it, and it's all the only physical copy of Dick's Picks I own. Oh, there you go. I've been listening since you first started, and even am re-listening while staying up to date. Wow. Uh, the next show is one I have been anticipating greatly, mostly because it's two shows, one of which is the infamous Mescaline show, and we're going to get into that, don't worry. Uh, but the other one is from my home state of Connecticut. I still reside here, and I'm very much a fan of all the shows that have been performed here, which makes me think, is Connecticut a top five home for the dead? And he goes on to list every show that was played in Hartford, Connecticut, and New Haven, Connecticut. There's quite a few. You have to read every single show. <laughs> all right, everybody settle in. Uh, Uh, And then there were even shows in Middletown, Connecticut, at Wesleyan University, and a couple shows at the Palace Theater in Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, for for a total of 36 shows. There you go. Some pretty good ones and official releases in there, not to mention 16 JGB shows as well. I definitely think Connecticut played a great spot in their history. Your thoughts? From Brendan. Uh, 36 Connecticut shows from the vault. That's going to be our next uh, series. That could be Brendan's uh, side project. I mean... Shout out to Connecticut. Obviously, the dead played there a lot. I don't mean any disrespect to Connecticut, but like if Connecticut was not between Boston and New York City or in the same vicinity, would they be getting all these dead shows? I don't know. Maybe the dead just love Connecticut. Like, what's Connecticut known for? John Mayer is from Connecticut, actually. So maybe oh. maybe that was part of him deciding that he was going <laughs> to be a founding member of the Grateful Dead because he's like right. this band's always playing in my state <laughs> so I will one day take my rightful place at the head of this band once Jerry's no longer with us All right. I'll take his place so yeah you have John Mayer from Connecticut I think Connecticut is known for being between New York and Boston <laughs> sad to say I mean it but which is great for bands because you, you got to play somewhere during the week between your Boston run and your New York run and so Connecticut gets all those midweek shows but of all the bands uh you know trying to trying to fill empty empty dates on the calendar the midweek shows and John Mayer those are the two big Connecticut I think contributions to the Grateful Dead which hey I'm from Wisconsin. I don't know what else. I mean, we have Alpine Valley. So, you know, we got that going. But we don't have John Mayer. So, you know, Connecticut, hats off to you. Great Grateful Dead state. I mean, it's the second uh, Dick's Picks from Connecticut out of the first 25. So for such a tiny state, that's that's a pretty good uh, representation. So well done. Well done, Brendan. Thank you for writing in. So let's get into the show here. We're going to be talking about some of the background of this gig. The album... Dick's Picks 25 was released on July 20th, 2002. And like we said, two shows, four discs, over five hours of music. So uh, we're getting a lot here. And we've talked before, you know, we talked last episode about how we were happy that that show was cut down a little bit. The two discs, Dick's Picks 24 could have been three discs, but it was probably a better listen because it was cut down a bit. There was some cuts, I think, done to these shows, but not many, right? I mean, this is yeah. basically getting everything here. Yeah, by 78, they're playing a shorter show. They're playing two shorter sets than some of these marathon early 70s shows. So the only thing that were cut was, it must have been The Roses. This is the cut for the second volume in a row. Uh, and U.S. Blues from May 10th. And then on May 11th, they cut Mexicali Blues, Mama Tried, and Peggy O, which... 
Peggio, it's okay to cut because it was also on May 10th. So they avoided the double there. So I don't know. I mean, it kind of works. This is a set that works, I think, if you treat it as two two disc albums packaged together. Like nobody in their right mind could sit there and listen to Dick's Picks Volume 25 for five hours, I think. Fortunately, a lot of deadheads are not in their right mind. I was going to say someone right now. Maybe is, some people can do it. Someone is furiously <laughs> typing up a letter right now saying, listen up, Rob, the real deadheads totally nailed this whole show in one night, man. We just crammed it. Right. Five hours of dead. No bathroom breaks. No bathroom breaks <laughs> um, at all. The other, I mean, it, the other thing is that 78 is, I think, not something you can take a huge dose of at once. And we'll get into this. But it's like a, it's a very particular year, a very particular flavor of the dead that I don't think really warrants a five-hour sitting as much as i like certain parts of it it's just like i don't know it's a weird fit for like a double size show double size release see i don't know i i i think i agree with you but i think that's speaking to our preference i think a lot of people this is like right in the sweet spot because Mm -hmm. you really hear the continuation of 77 at this point even though we're getting now almost into the middle of 78 a lot of the things that people love about 77, the arena rockiness of the band at that time, the sleazy disco influence that that, that was seeping in in 77. I mean, that really yeah. comes to the fore in 78. You know, they're a good time party band in this era. They're less psychedelic, right. a little more focused. A lot of people like that. So I could see people, it's like, yeah, just load me up on 78 Dead. You know, just pile yeah. up my plate with all those sleazy, coked out grooves, man. I'll take whatever you got. And of course, this these shows come only about three months after the Dick's Picks 18 shows, which that was Dick's Picks 18 right. was the end of our second season. Those were three Midwestern shows. And it's interesting. We're going to get into this in the episode. I, I feel like you can tell a difference. I, I, I listened to some of 18 just as a comparison. Mm. And this show is like even more coked out, I think. And maybe they just couldn't get good stuff in the Midwest in February. <laughs> in Cedar Falls, yeah. But they were getting hooked up by this time. And of course, as our letter writer alluded to, the second night of the show, the May 11th show, is known as like a mescaline show. Yeah. I mean, has that been confirmed? Or, I mean, is this like an urban legend? Uh, if anything, it's been unconfirmed. I, I guess Steve Parrish did like a Reddit AMA recently, and pe- somebody asked him specifically about this show, whether they were on Mescaline, and he was like, nah, man, no, nah, they didn't do Mescaline at this time in their history or whatever. I mean, if Steve Parrish can remember what drugs the dead took on every night of the 70s, I would be yeah. impressed, uh, but also surprised. Uh, so I think this one might have possibly gotten by steve parrish who may have been on you know substances of his own that night <laughs> yeah i mean you know not the most reliable narrative possibly in steve parrish right i mean there are some moments on the third and fourth discs where you're thinking okay there's some goofiness going on here they're <laughs> yeah. a little oh, loopy yeah. so yeah. i wouldn't be shocked if there were mescaline flowing in the veins at that point but We'll get into that yeah. as we get into the show. But yeah, spring 78 tour, yeah, we said this earlier, 78 was a big touring year for the Grateful Dead. Right. A lot of shows. Yeah. And very well, as you said, like people love 78, or at least there, there seems to be insatiable demand for 78 shows because there has been a lot of spring 1978 release by the Grateful Dead. We talked about 
you know, Dick's picks 18 and then Dick's picks 25. Uh, there's two Dave's picks from late April of 78. The 36 trips around the sun box had the May 14th show. So just a couple nights after these shows, there's uh, an, an early summer tour, which ends in Red Rocks. Uh, and with a couple shows before that, those all came out as the July 78 box in 2016. So you can almost listen to like most of April, May, June and July in officially released soundboard format after 77 was kind of cut short uh in the summer by mickey's car accident they really were road dogs in 1978 they were playing colleges they were playing memorial auditoriums and they were playing minor league hockey stadiums of course and we got two of those tonight so a busy schedule uh, for the dead and when they weren't on the road they were in the studio and not just as a band but on their own i mean the month before these shows jerry puts out cats under the stars a solo record well it's attributed to the jerry garcia band i think it's the only studio album attributed to the jerry garcia band and -hmm. i think it's his best solo record i mean the the garcia is a great record too it it rivals that one but i've always had a soft spot for cats under the stars ruben and sharice probably a top five Garcia Hunter song for me. I love that record. And then you have you also have Have It Help the Fool by Bob Weir. <laughs> right. It comes out in January of 78. I ironically love that album. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like, it's a really fun record, like a soft rock, late 70s. It feels like maybe more than Jerry even that Bob thought, well, maybe I can establish a solo identity. It really feels mm-hmm. pitched in a more commercial direction. Than right. even what Jerry was doing. Although Jerry, I mean, he's talked about this that Cats Under the Stars was like, he worked hard on that record. Like he put more effort into into like in the studio on that album than he did on most of his other records. Uh so he took that one pretty seriously, but yeah, I don't know. Haven't helped this fool. I mean the title says it all. <laughs> I think you can kind of feel the influence of Bob's Heaven Help the Fool direction on this show too it's like the dead trying to be slick like they're wearing a costume of being a slick late 70s band and they can't quite pull it off but there's a lot about this show that feels i don't know produced in a way as produced as they could be live that is is, is a little bit jarring after the the last couple volumes we've done i think but it's also yeah. sleazy it is very sleazy all right well so let's talk about the venues that we're going to be visiting on Dick's Picks 25, we'll start with the New Haven Coliseum first. This was built in 1968, completed in 1972, so relatively new venue at the time of this show. You know, only about six years old, and sadly, it's no longer with us. Yeah, it got uh, demolished in 2007. Apparently, there was a documentary made about this venue and and the demolition of it. It came out in 2010. It's called The Last Days of the Coliseum, hmm. and apparently, it's just talking about the importance of the New Haven Coliseum and the history of Connecticut music. Right. So, Brendan, if you're out there, <laughs> check this movie out. It might answer your question better than we did. Yeah. In terms of the the uh, importance of Connecticut. I would hope so. Yeah. In uh, dead history. But yeah, it held about 11,500 people. It was a minor league hockey arena. Of course. Big shock. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The New Haven Knights of the United Hockey League played there. Also the New Haven Nighthawks, New Haven Senators, and Beast of New Haven. (laughs) Yeah, Beast of New Haven. (laughs) That's an amazing name. That's some like extreme sports, late 90s era (laughs) minor league hockey team probably, but 
Yeah. I got to say, like, that was all in the American Hockey League. I don't know if that was, like, the same franchise that just <laughs> had different names. Yeah. I have to say that I hear the name Beast, and I'm like, whoa. And then I hear New Haven, and I'm like, eh, okay. Yeah. yeah I'm a little less intimidated. <laughs> um, the Dead played there 11 times right. between 77 and 84. So they were in New Haven all the time. They played other venues in New Haven as well, but... This was their place. There was a Van Halen concert recorded there called Live Without yeah. a Net, which uh, I guess is a could be a dead crossover. Is that a good one? Is that still that's still Roth that, era, I imagine. No, that's that's the first uh, Van Hagar tour. It is okay. Fifty one fifty. because Roth left in eighty five and then they came back in eighty six. So yeah, they did Without a Net before the Dead did because. Mm-hmm. Without a net, the dead record that came out a few years after that. Right. The final band to play this venue was Tool. Mm-hmm. They played there in 2002, and then they were like, "Okay, we don't need any more concerts after this. <laughs> we're done." Tool does not seem like a triumphant way to go out uh, as They're a concert a great live venue. band. They are. I, I imagine they are. I haven't seen them. I saw them on that tour. Actually, I uh-huh. saw them in Green Bay, Wisconsin, in 2002. They don't have like a big triumphant arena rock finale though. That you then implode the stadium afterwards. It, it seems like Springsteen should probably just close every venue in America. <laughs> he should be the official venue closer. <laughs> Tool's live show actually though, it's it's a lot like Pink Floyd. Like they do like a lot of visuals. So it's like yeah. it actually is like a pretty big show. Right. Look at me. I'm defending Tool. Yeah. On this podcast, <laughs> but it's good. They're, it was they're a good live band, and that was a, that was a good show. I'm sure there's a Tool Dead uh, crossover. Oh, absolutely. There's some Tool heads out there. Oh, sure. I, I know. I know you're out there. Yeah. So that, that's what they played on May 10th. May 11th, Springfield Civic Center Arena. Right. Massachusetts for the other show, and as I said, only only an hour apart. Cannot believe that. Yeah. Uh, doesn't even seem worth it to uh, to pick up and move <laughs> an hour down the road, but. Hey, that's that's how they did it back then. Again, I mean, this is our constant complaint, but if you're living on the East Coast, you're just tripping over Grateful Dead shows. That's right. In, in the 70s and 80s. You go home from a Dead show, and Jerry's like in your living room playing guitar. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how common Grateful Dead shows were right. on the East Coast in the 70s and 80s. And Springfield uh, is technically Western Massachusetts, right? That's fair to say. Man, I don't know. I mean, th- our ignorance of East Coast right. comes out sometimes. Like I had to look up New Haven, like where that was in proximity <laughs> to New York. Yeah, I, I was like, it's like that's two hours from New York. But then I did some research. I was like, oh no, that's actually you know a lot of people take the train right from Manhattan. Maybe like a ferry New- boat. It looks like I'm also looking at a map because my New England geography is terrible. I've even yeah. like I, I did a little fish tour between Worcester and Hartford uh, several years ago, and you know what though? Yeah, you East Coast people, you. You think the world revolves around you? <laughs> Not on this show. No, it's backwards. It's two Midwestern people. We don't. We don't. We don't know anything about you. Yeah, yeah. We're getting our revenge. This, the, this show runs on Central Time, baby. <laughs> That's right. So, so get used to it. Um, Springfield Civic Center Arena, another minor league hockey arena. Right. I love the consistency. Yeah. Tons of minor league hockey teams played there. Holds up to uh, eighty three hundred people. They actually had some cool shows here. Uh, Dylan played there on the Rolling Thunder Review in 75. I think that's in that box set, the Springfield show. Mm, it's yeah, like a pretty correct. early show. Yeah, that You have Springsteen on the Darkness of, uh, on the Edge of Town tour. You have Queen on the News of the World tour in 77. Nirvana played there in 93. The Dead played there 10 times between 72 and 85. So we have these two venues an hour apart. Dead played there 21 times yeah. in the 70s and 80s. 
Unbelievable. <laughs> and of course, I mean, this was like, it's like from the mid seventies to the mid eighties. And of course, after the mid eighties, they were playing stadiums like mm-hmm. not long after that. So these minor league hockey arenas were getting the shaft. I looked up this article that was talking about other shows in Springfield, Massachusetts, that the dead played. And apparently there was a show in 73 where for the show, Jerry got arrested for speeding by the New Jersey State Police on the way to Springfield. Mm. And the cops found weed and cocaine in his suitcase, his famous suitcase. Right. He went to jail briefly, but then they posted bail and he went on that night. So... Rock and roll, baby. (laughs) Jerry in 73. I feel uh, justified in all of our cocaine insinuations that (laughs) it's a a matter of police record that Jerry was carrying it around. Though 73, not a cokey sound for the dead at all. No. Yeah. Not at all. It's it's like pretty spacey. Yeah, the opposite. Laid back. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe he was doing rails after the show. Not during or before. Or just to get to the show. Yeah. Speeding through New Jersey. Yeah. He had a good mixture, maybe, you know, <laughs> doing a combination of things to stay even keel. set the scene here let's talk about what else is going on pop culture yeah so uh it's early 78 uh so we're still in the period of saturday night fever dominance on the charts and uh the number one single was if i can't have you by yvonne elman so not a bg's track it's the only non-bg's track on side a if i'm right uh saturday night fever soundtrack it's a bg's song that they then had yvonne elman sing the vocals for i think you can also find a bg's version of it if you want i like i like if i can't have you i think it's a pretty good song oh, yeah 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 all those songs they just kind of nail it i mean the Bee Gees were uh oh yeah were on fire at this time and they uh they profited greatly off of it uh, a cool fact i learned digging into the recording of this track and all the other bg's tracks great bg's tracks from saturday night fever they laid down the basic tracks at the chateau de Hereville, if i'm saying that right my french is terrible uh which dead fans might remember as the site of a very random europe 1971 show uh they were supposed to play a festival in france and it got rained out but they were staying at this fancy chateau in france they decided to just play a show for whoever was around. So it was kind of like a chill friends and family show. It's June 21st, 1971. You can find that on the archive, uh, of course. Uh, so the Bee Gees were uh, just seven years, six or seven years behind uh, the dead in performing at this, you know, French Via. Lots of other bands recorded there too. Bowie started recording low there before he actually moved to Berlin. Uh, Elton John recorded Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. It, it is probably the Honky Chateau of yeah of the album i was assuming that yeah i think elton worked there quite a bit did you hear that story like and i wonder if this will even be out by the time this episode goes up that like the foo fighters are doing an album of bg's covers really no there's this there's this weird thing that the foo fighters are on where they're doing like 
they they called their last album like their dance album. Okay. So they're doing these like kind of disco experiments, which for that band, I don't feel like that works no. at all. No, it's not what I want. Uh, <laughs> not, what, <laughs> not what anybody wants. <laughs> there's not, yeah, there's many things we don't want from the Foo Fighters. We right. definitely don't want Bee Gees covers. Maybe they would cover Shakedown Street. Ooh. You think they'd ever get to Shakedown? Yeah. I don't oh, know. man. <laughs> I, I, I'm feeling the fury of our audience already. <laughs> Bet this mere suggestion of Just that. Just imagining sh- that. Other tracks in the top 10 this week were uh, You're the One That I Want from Greece. So the, the next Travolta musical sensation is already on the charts. That's how long Saturday Night Fever was on. Uh, there's a Jefferson Starship song that I had never heard of called Count On Me. I listened to it and it sucked. But the dead still getting lapped by their old buddies in Jefferson Airplane as far as commercial success. Can we just say Jefferson Airplane, they're not that good, right? Well, I'm not, I, I, I don't like their 60s stuff either, really. Aside from... David Gans is totally out now. Now he's setting I'm his uh, podcast on fire. <laughs> I've, I've tried with that band. I mean, well, first of all, again, as we established, what was that? Dick's Picks 21 episode mm. in 85. You know, we were talking about we built this city and that whole era, like the most egregious sellout of all time. (laughs) I just awful sellout selling out right starship at that moment but like, even their 60s stuff i'm not a huge fan of it like i've tried i've dabbled in it I, I i can't get into it i feel like all the negative stereotypes about san francisco bands from the 60s like apply to jefferson airplane yeah it just seems like kind of lame ineffectual rock music yeah. I, I, it seems really dated to me yeah yeah um i kind of like hot tuna like hot tuna i'm more amenable to like the side project sure uh but i don't know i'm just i can't get into jefferson airplane there's some weird like paul kantner solo records you know blows oh, against yeah. the empire and stuff like that you get jerry's on I do it like that yeah yeah that's that record's so weird i i do kind of get into that record right i mean i'm not a huge jefferson airplane fan i do think maybe i like them a little more than you do but i mean they definitely don't connect with me like the dead do yeah you're right it's kind of like your stock late 60s psychedelic rock and again egregious selling out just <laughs> terrible selling out yeah. by that band Absolutely. i'm sorry but the, the biggest sellouts ever all right Number one album? Yeah, number one album, Saturday Night Fever. And then a lot of other, like, sort of... I mean, Jefferson Starship's Earth is on there. That must be the album that Count On Me came from. Yeah. You got a Wings, one of the Lesser Wings albums, London Town, Eric Clapton's Slow Hand. There you go. And then then we get into the real Steve Turf, Steve Turf, with uh, Running On Empty by Jackson Brown and Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon, which we will revisit later on in this episode. We'll talk about Warren later. Man, Eric Clapton. Ugh. Whew. Man. Man. Just digging that you know, hole deeper and deeper. In terms of classic rock heroes that have taken a tumble yeah. in my lifetime, yeah. no one even no one even compares to Eric Clapton. When I started le- learning about music in the late 80s, he was considered like a peer of, of Jimi Hendrix. It was like oh, yeah. him or Hendrix are like the two best. Now it's like even thinking that that was once considered... <laughs> A narrative or that people believe that it just seems ridiculous right like what like Jimi hendrix you're putting him on the hendrix level like clearly does not belong yeah even in the same stadium as Jimi hendrix even though he's had a much longer career obviously 
but like Jimmy still has more great music, even right. though he's only alive, you know, until he's twenty seven. <laughs> if you were to stack all the great Jimi Hendrix music together, you'd be like, Oh yeah, like it's still more than what Clapton has done in like fifty years. And he's also just an idiot too. Yeah. And like look, I like some Clapton stuff. Like I've defended Clapton. Sure. But man, he makes it really hard. Yeah. For anyone that would even, you know, not want to just dismiss him outright you know it's like okay if you want to dismiss him go ahead i can't defend this guy yeah. anymore yep uh yeah i'm not gonna argue leave it at that argue for clapton at all yeah uh the number one film this one i thought was really interesting uh is a movie called fist f-i-s-t yes. starring sylvester stallone i had never heard of this movie before and cannot believe i guess it was the follow-up to rocky sort of but seems like a fascinating movie <laughs> and yeah I've, I've heard of it i've never seen it i think it's like set in the 30s yeah it seemed like kind of like, like a, a tough on the waterfront is sort of what it yeah. looked like from reading the synopsis. Like, on the waterfront, except uh, with a much a more badass lead than <laughs> Marlon Brando. <laughs> right. Although Stallone kind of had, like, a young Brando quality it's at true. that time. Yeah, yeah. This was before he turned into, like, Rambo. Right. And, you know, got into the 80s. Put this in our outline that Anthony Kiedis <laughs> is in this movie? He plays... I guess Anthony Kiedis is a child actor. I had no idea. I didn't know that either. He plays Sylvester Stallone's son in this movie. Oh, my God. So that was that was shocking. He, he's under a different name. I, I forgot to write it down because his dad was an actor. And it's like some version of his dad's actor name. Uh, so he's not billed as Anthony Kiedis. But if you want to see like a 10-year-old Anthony Kiedis in a movie, rent fist <laughs> from your nearest streaming device. Is his shirt off in the movie <laughs> time probably wearing like shorts with like doc martin boots <laughs> um man i definitely want to see that movie now um the last waltz came ar- out around this time yeah just a couple weeks before these shows i was surprised the last waltz took so long to put together because it was uh thanksgiving 76 was when they recorded it apparently it took almost a year and a half to edit and release well scorsese was also doing new york new york at the same time that came out in 77 and this was like a notoriously unhealthy time for scorsese like he was really partying hard okay yeah and hanging out with robbie robertson too much yeah (laughs) it was like in the hollywood hills did you ever see that movie american boy yeah that that short that he did i did watch it when it was on criterion channel yes it was great uh like a lot of scorsese uh documentaries it's like he's all over it right he's all over it it's like you know He's hanging out with this guy, Stephen Prince, who's in, he has a small part in Taxi Driver. He plays the the guy who sells Travis Bickle his guns. And he's the Stephen Prince guy is just a huge character. And they're hanging out in this house in the Hollywood Hills. And, like, they don't show drugs being done, but, like, it's very clear that drugs are being taken. It's heavily implied, yeah. Like, like, like Scorsese and this guy end up in a hot tub together, you know, <laughs> in the movie. You know, so enough said there. So, yeah, Scorsese was, was rocking hard, uh, so it took him a while to finish The Last Waltz. The Buddy Holly story came out around this time, which is, I haven't seen this either with Gary Busey. I saw it as a kid. It's funny that Gary Busey was ever clean cut enough to play Buddy Holly, but I guess he had to, he had to start somewhere. I love Busey at that time. He was a great actor. Did you know like he had like a motorcycle accident in the 80s and I think that's what screwed him up? Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I think he like kind of went off the deep end after that because he was just like this great character actor yeah. in, the, in the 70s and 80s. He's in that movie Big Wednesday, that John Milius movie about surfers. Hmm. 
And, it's and he looks like really, he looks really fit. Amazing. It's interesting that he did that and then he, he was in Point Break. Oh, yeah. You know, but 16 years later. But that's what I really think was, of Gary Busey as. Yeah, Point Break, Gary Busey. Yeah, <laughs> great movie. And then the number one show in America, Not All in the Family. No, Laverne and Shirley. So we've talked about it before, yes. the Marshall verse. There was, uh, yes. once All in the Family faded, the Marshall verse was there to take its place. So it's great. Yeah, Wisconsin, man. That was like our shining moment in the <laughs> pop culture spotlight because you had that you had happy days right i guess that was it i think i don't think there were any other shows set in wisconsin was mark and mindy in wisconsin too no that's in uh colorado oh i don't know why but <laughs> it might be in denver i don't know if it's for sure in denver or if it's in boulder but I, I remember it's in colorado another good grateful dead stronghold out there i wonder if mark was ever saw the dead <laughs> we know dr johnny fever saw the dead I don't know if Mark ever saw some the dudes that looked like Good Mark question. were definitely at dead shows. Yeah, absolutely. There are other aliens out there at dead <laughs> shows for sure. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Okay, we finally got to our show here. We have a lot of music to get through. Four discs. Right. Two discs per show, May 10th and 11th, 1978. Yeah, and just uh, to warn you, if we might skip over a few songs here. So don't don't be sad if we, uh, we merge some songs together, skip over some songs. Uh, four discs of The Grateful Dead. That's a lot to get through. We don't want to make this a 
our longest episode ever, I don't think. You know, Rob and I are not doing cocaine, unfortunately, <laughs> during this episode, unlike the dead. So, you know, give us a break here as we get started. But we kick off disc one with one of the great set openers, I think, historically for the dead, Jack Straw. Mm-hmm. I guess we should return to your earlier point. You were talking about how you feel like this is the dead in sort of like a slicker yeah. mode. And I feel like that comes across in this version of Jack Straw. Yeah, I think like this is getting to the time of the 70s where maybe under pressure from disco or maybe from the sort of like, I don't know, maybe the LA bands like Fleetwood Mac type sound being very slick, very glossy. You get a lot of bands moving into like, I don't, not almost sort of like a Vegasy version of themselves. And I'm not saying that's what the dead is here, but I mean, it's, it's like the dead as kind of professional as they would ever get. And I think you can hear it right off the bat in Jack Straw, uh, particularly going from volumes 23 and 24 to this one, where we had like pure rootsy Americana chugle in 72. We had the deep jazzy experimentation of 74 uh and then even though we have two drummers now which makes you know usually means it's going to be a much more ramshackle sound and not tight in any meaningful sense of the word 77 and 78 when they were sort of tight you get this sort of slick sort of sleazy grateful dead and uh i like it I like it in, I think, maybe smaller doses than five hours of 78 Dead, but it's very bombastic, too. Jackstraw builds to this, like, really big three-vocalist crescendo in a way that I think a lot of the older versions are a little more subtle about. But, uh, yeah, it's it stands out to me. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that maybe you could attribute to them just, again, playing a lot. Mm-hmm. They seemed really well rehearsed at this time. Yeah. I mean, this show's not as improvisational, really, as some shows that we've heard beyond the drums. I mean, the drums really take up the like improv part of both of these shows, but like mm-hmm. as a band, you know, they're not stretching out a whole lot on these shows. So the craziness that we all love, we're not going to get maybe as much of that here as we would in other eras. I will say that one thing I really like about this show and I'm almost tempted. I actually, I will say this. I think an MVP for me of these shows is Donna. I think Donna, this is the best Donna has sounded on a Dick's Picks. Yeah. And like the interplay between her and Bob for me is a consistent highlight on both of these shows. And, you know, we were talking about the wall of sound in the previous episode and how that sometimes hurt Donna because it was hard for her to hear herself. She is totally on point on these shows. Her singing is subtle it's really soulful. And again, the way that she interacts with Bob, I think, is really charming. And I really like it a lot. Yeah. And you get that already in this Jack Straw. And we're going to get that a lot on this first disc, especially the interplay between those two.
Yeah, we've talked about a lot. Earlier in the 70s, it seems like they were kind of awkwardly trying to integrate Donna into the show. And there are shows where she's kind of missing or only on a couple songs or songs where she hasn't quite got her to her iconic parts yet. Uh, I mean, this is like Donna as truly a full member of the dead, I feel like. She's out there for more than half the songs. And it, it, it doesn't sound like she's just sort of like a guest that drops in every once in a while. She's like integral to the arrangements of these songs in this era. And it's kind of like sad almost in a way because we're... So this is about a year before the God Chows are essentially kicked out of the band. And you can hear kind of Keith's problems coming up in this show. I mean, Keith is kind of a missing figure a lot in this show. It's sort of sad that like Donna was really coming into her own as a member of the dead at the same time that her husband, sort of estranged husband at this point, uh, was fading out and probably led to them getting tossed. Well, they almost had opposite trajectories because Keith was really strong in the beginning and then he faded and then Donna just got better and better Mm -hmm. throughout the 70s. And yeah, like by now it feels like, again, like what her and Bob have going on, I think is really great. But yeah, Keith is kind of a non-factor a lot of the time. He has some moments here and there, but yeah, you can't really hear him a lot. And again, you know, maybe it's the mix Although, did we mention that these are Betty boards? Yeah, no, I don't think we did. But yeah, normally Betty would, I think, represent Keith well, but I think he's just yeah. not playing much. Yeah, he's not contributing much to the Enterprise. So that's a real bummer. I and mean, that's definitely a weakness of these shows, I think, that Keith's not there. Yeah. Um, can we talk about like some good off-mic banter that yeah. happens at the end of this song? <laughs> so I guess this like tour is known, maybe because they just played so many shows together, Like it's known for like comedy bits by the the band <laughs> like i guess there was something where jerry and bob would come out for some of these shows and try and like sk- pretend like they were trying to squeeze through the door at the same time between but they were going between <laughs> amps like a laurel and hardy bit where they were like they, they they were both trying to go at the same time so they couldn't get through if you really crank up the banter at the end of jack straw you hear some really hilarious bob jerry uh sparring joking joke sparring uh, where Bob says, we're all patiently waiting for Jerry to get his act together. Jerry says something before this, and I couldn't quite make it out, but at the very end, he goes, I'm not going to do it. Fuck you. <laughs> to Th- Bob. Doesn't he call him like, it sounds like someone says like asshole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before that. I think maybe Jerry calls Bob an asshole or something. Well, I think he names the song that he's going to play next and then calls Bob an asshole and then switches the song or something. So, yeah, whatever's going on, they're definitely, there's a lot of band chemistry on this set. I love the insult comic vibe between these two. It's great. It's like a buddy comedy in the middle of the show. So it's a beautiful thing. We get to love each other next. I'm shocked by the note that you left here. I'm just going to let you read it well i mean i guess it's a good connection to what we were talking about with keith sort of fading out and keith only wanting to play piano apparently i I looked this up bob sort of blames keith not wanting to branch out sonically into other keyboard instruments for him deciding to pick up one of the most controversial objects in all of grateful dead history well for you well i think for a lot of people okay that's true the bob's use of this instrument uh the slide with his guitar. Bob, in a quote in Guitar Player in 1981, uh, he says he started playing slide. It came out of a desire to hear a sustained instrument in the band. 
when we were playing right. with Keith Gatchow, he played acoustic piano almost exclusively, and we didn't have a real sustained instrument except what Garcia was doing. I guess desperation is the mother of invention. I figured you could have quite a bit of sustain with a slide, especially if you throw in a little feedback and distortion. So I took up playing slide guitar pretty much for that reason, and I've had a lot of fun with it. And so have we all, Bob. <laughs> well, what's funny about that explanation is that, you know, by the late 80s, you have uh, Brent playing all sorts of keyboards right. to really flesh out the sound. And Bob's playing like more slide than ever yeah. at that point. He's doing like 10-minute blues dirges right. like in the third slot of every show. So yeah, he just got addicted to the slide. But you like this slide. Well, so here's the He's interesting like- thing about these shows. This is very new in the Bob Weir slide guitar experiment. And he's just playing it like everywhere. I mean, there's got to be at least half a dozen songs on this four disc set where Bobby's playing slide. And some songs that you don't, like I typically don't think of as Bobby slide songs. There's no Bobby blues. There's no Little Red Rooster with a painfully long, excruciating <laughs> Bobby guitar, slide guitar solo. Uh, instead, it's stuff like They Love Each Other. It's mostly Jerry songs. It's Bobby playing slide as sort of an accompaniment to a, a Jerry song. Uh, and I kind of like it. I almost like it as a nice like little textural element. Uh, it, it goes wrong here and there, but I think it kind of sounds good. It makes it sound stand out like They Love Each Other as a song we've heard frequently but i don't really recall it having this sort of element to it and i i kind of liked it in this case i gotta say i dig it i i'm more amenable to bobby slide in general than you even like those late 80s blues dirges i kind of get into them like more often than not yeah but uh yeah i mean because he's playing it for more for like textural purposes here and it's kind of dreamy sounding Mm -hmm. in the same way that jerry plays the slide uh, and I re- and I like Jerry Slide much more than Bob Slide, but it's almost like he's emulating how Jerry does Slide mm-hmm. on this song. So it's good. You also get, and we alluded to this earlier, you get the classic you know, callback of Bob Weir banter because uh, there's some sort of technical glitch. And he's like, we're carefully weeding out all those tiny little bothersome technical imperfections that we just can't stand. Real soon, everything will be just exactly perfect, which he loves to say. And again, <laughs> I wonder if maybe Grateful Seconds out there or somebody else, can we track down? Like, did because my theory on this is that someone made a snarky comment in a concert review once. Right. There was screw ups. Bob read that. He's like, oh, that got under my skin. <laughs> I'm going to reference this whenever we screw up for the rest of my life. <laughs> for the rest of my, well, does he do that outside of 77 78? I feel like that's like this era. Yeah. He does the just exactly perfect. Maybe John yeah. Mayer does it for Dead and Company. <laughs> oh man. Well, John's always perfect, baby. Not a hair out of place on right. that guy. We get the Cassidy next and this is I think another example of Bob and Donna sounding great together. Yeah. And I got to say like, you know, we we're saying before it's a bummer that Donna left just as she seemed to be really finding her footing in the band. I think it's a missed opportunity that like Bob and Donna didn't do like some sort of romantic duets <laughs> album together. Because like Donna is, uh, you know, she did things with Jerry. Right. She's on Cats Under the Stars. Yeah. She's on Cats Under the Stars. But like she should have been with Bob, I think, because Bob has that, what, like that lover man sex hunk mm-hmm. persona. You know, 
And him and Donna together, it's like Beauty and the Beast, you know? Like, they got that thing going on. I think that could have been, they could have milked that. Yeah. You know, that could have been, like, the deadhead version of, like, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. You know, like, that that vibe. If Heaven Help the Fool had been a little more like Buckingham Knicks. Where there you go. They're, like, in the nude, embracing each other on the cover. Yeah. I don't know if Keith would have liked that, but I think Donna and Keith were pretty uh, <laughs> on the splits by this point. This is the era where they're, like, making faces at each other on stage, right? I was thinking about, like, the, you know, that Robert Plant, Alison Krauss album that won the Grammy, Raising Sand? Mm, like, yeah, the, the harmonies on that record kind of remind me of what Bob and Donna are doing mm. because it's almost it's like very soft singing, mm-hmm. which you don't expect from either of them, like right. Bob and Donna. They both could be pretty bombastic, but I don't know it's really pleasant. I really like how they sing together, are you know, in this show. Yeah, and Cassidy is a song that I think really takes full flight in the '80s, and you get a lot of Bob Brent duets on Cassidy. But this, you know, sort of near the end of Daniel's tenure, I think, stands up to that. Like, it's it sounds really great. You know, like in the 80s, they kind of had like a bro thing going on. Yeah. You know, like Bob and Brent. But this is almost like more romantic. Yeah. It's like the romantic side of this song, which I really dig. Ramble on Rose. Don't have much to say about this song. I think it's a nice version of the song. These are very, like, humorous shows. Like, the band is in a very good mood and is there's a lot of in-jokes, a lot of banter. A lot of like trying to crack each other up. And Ramble on Rose, I think, always works best when the band is kind of in like a sly mood. So uh, this this is a good one uh, for that, I guess. It just it fits the environment very well. So these next two songs I'm going to group together because yeah. I feel like this is where the sleaze starts to come in. <laughs> Me and my uncle and Big River. Me and my uncle, like, th- this is a song that they really discoed up. Right. And this is only like a couple weeks after the staying in lot staying alive. Me and my uncle that we excerpted right. several volumes ago, where they actually do play like thirty seconds of staying alive, and then they work it out. They tease it throughout. Me and my uncle. I think there's even like a little brief staying alive right before they kick into it this night. So yeah, this is our first appearance of the uh, disco drums that we have been. We always talk about on seventy seven, seventy eight shows. They lay it on pretty thick. And for Big River, you know. I've been a big river booster lately. I didn't love this version as much as some. And this is going to be a common refrain for me in this episode, <laughs> but I have to go back to the J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. Yeah, cue up your Not my tempo. Yeah. You know, Big River is like a jaunty song. It's pretty fast-paced, but like it happens on this song and it happens on a bunch of other songs where it almost sounds frantic mm-hmm. and it kills it a little bit for me. And it just seems like a little clumsy. So... Again, not my tempo. Yeah, I guess I would say about this version of Big River. Yeah, I mean it's there are a few songs on the delicate side in this volume that the drummers can't quite ramp it down for. But there's a couple other songs that are slowed down, like the next one, Peggyo, where I think they sound very nice and they can create like a pretty good, you know, soft rock rhythmic backdrop for jerry to sing his folk ballad i mean this is also one where one of the rare times in this set where i heard you know keith playing pretty well yeah he has a nice solo yeah this is a great era for peggio yeah just like it's a great era for sugary which i feel like those songs feel like they're part of the same branch right you know there's a similar vibe to those songs peggio was cut out of the may 11th show which i guess makes sense but i could have heard another peggio i love peggio yeah. i never get sick of this song Really beautiful song and great Jerry vocal. This is a song, too, that I always loved hearing him play in the 90s, toward the end. Very tender song. It's great. Let It Grow comes next. And this is, I want to talk to you about this. (laughs) 
Because you've talked about weather report suite. You feel like it's a little sleepy at the beginning. Yeah. You tend to get more excited when Let It Grow comes on. I'm fully on board now with preferring weather report suite and not really liking it when Let It Grows by itself. I just feel like when you jump right into it, it doesn't have the build. And I don't feel like it quite has the payoff. Yeah. If you don't have the beginning part. And again, especially in this era, this is another song that seems a little frantic almost at the beginning. And I don't know. I miss the the kind of cool build, the dreamy part that gets you to let it grow. Yeah. You might be winning me over or maybe the dick picks are winning me over because this is one that I like did not enjoy them leaping right into let it grow. I mean, they kind of they kind of fuck up the intro. Everything is a bit less than just exactly perfect when they get started. This let it grow, it doesn't seem to ever really fly for me is that because they didn't do the whole weather report suite lead up i don't know i don't think that they would have handled the very quiet weather report suite prelude in part one in this era of the dead anyway but uh you'd have more bobby slide maybe though you know you get more slide (laughs) coming at you he would play his own slide instead of having jerry do it yeah that's true maybe there'd be two slides going on yeah oh wow a slide double slide slide symphony it'd it'd be amazing yeah this let it grow i don't know it's not not my favorite I don't know if it was the tempo or something else, but it just didn't really didn't really click. And maybe the band felt that way too, because while Let It Grow ends a lot of sets, they have a bonus a bonus closer here with with Deal back in its sort of natural position that you always wanted to be in the the set closer deal. And uh, Bobby Slide comes out more again. Bobby Slide, the third Bobby Slide <laughs> already. <laughs> this is a song too that you really hear Bob and Donna have have fun on yeah. this song because yeah they're, they're goofing off I mean there's like some you know there's some Donna haters out there they might think that she's shrieking on this song <laughs> sounds shrill yeah but I think to me it's clear that they're goofing off yeah. and having a good time right and it adds to the song for me it's a really fun energetic version of this tune it's a good setup for the second show uh the mescaline show because it seems like they're kind of trying to make each other laugh and that pays off three discs down the line on disc four but they kind of are both doing like this like falsetto competition at the end of deal which is you know maybe not the the greatest thing technically to listen to but makes for kind of a funny showstopper moment you know, I kind of, I mean, I again, for all you CD listeners out there, you can relate to this. I kind of wish this was the last song on this disc. Mm, yeah. Because they, at the end, Bob, you know, says, hey, we'll be right back. Hang loose, I think he says. And then you get two songs after this. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> we just ended the set. We should be moving on to the next disc. So, but, you know, you have to space these things out. They already have four discs. Right. They got to squeeze everything on. What are they going to do? Six discs? Yeah. We're into the era now where they're playing short first sets and long second sets. So. Right. You're only getting 45 minutes of first set. So they got to they gotta cram something else on the end. If I can make a fish reference here. Yeah. Is it fair to describe Deal as their character zero? Ugh. Because <laughs> it just seems like I mean it's a better song than Character Zero. Right. Although I like Character Zero, yeah. But you know, it just seems like the fun rock song you put at the end of the set, where the lead guitarist can just like rip, yeah, on the guitar, and it sends everybody off in like a really rousing kind of way. And maybe people roll their eyes because it's a little bit predictable, right? It's like a big rock ending, mm-hmm. but it also works. 
yeah. more often than not. Well, I've always been surprised how much Jerry played it with JGB. Like, I feel like it's the dead song that got played the most with Jerry Garcia band. So it seems like it, it scratches some itch with Jerry to just, like, let loose with a big guitar solo. When I think he usually played it at the end of the first set yeah. with JGB, too. And right. I think, again, it just makes sense to put it in that slide, especially with JGB, because, like, a lot of their songs... A lot of their set lists were like mellower mm-hmm. than the very dead. mellow. Yeah. So Deal was like a good, reliable rocker. You could put it at the end of the set. I'm sure he knew again, like, well, this song works and it's gonna get people excited. Right. I think it totally makes sense that he did that with the solo band. It's probably like, oh, it's easy too. Yeah. You know? That that might be what it is. <laughs> it's an easy song to play. <laughs> yeah, it's not complicated. Yeah. And it, 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 it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it works. So that's the end of the first set now on the May 10th show. So then we go into the beginning of the second set at the end of the first disc. And it's a Bertha Goodlovin double shot. Right. Which pretty predictable yeah, for this time. Here's one of the issues with 78 for me is that, I mean, this set is extremely predictable. Pretty much start to end. It's a lot of like song pairings that they would do, you know, all the time back in this era uh they didn't always stick them together bertha and good lovin were pretty much like a china writer uh combo at this point though if they were going to play one they were going to play both so maybe i'm being too harsh after we listened to that 76 show a few volumes ago i was like why didn't they keep up with that like where they were just really testing the limits of set lists and splitting up songs that don't normally get split up and doing some sort of palindromy bookends and things like that. Because in the room, Bertha Goodlovin kills. I'm I mean, sure, I'm sure it know? does. Yeah, but it's uh, like... You know, people are dancing and digging it. Yeah, for our purposes, 40 years later, right? it's like, oh, we would prefer the other thing. But I'm sure in the room, the palindrome shit is like, oh, dude, I... I can't dance to this. You know, where are the where's the good time jams? You know, so I'm, they're playing for the room. I, so I understand. But that's the thing: that. is this like the era then where the dead are moving from making it interesting for themselves to pleasing the crowd? And like, I don't think that they've like sold out in a Jefferson Starship sort of way by any means. But it does seem like you know doing something like help slip morning do slip frank or whatever that one was in 76 like this crazy you know very long uh song suite versus doing kind of these it's a song suite but it's like the same songs in the same order as they would be played on a whole bunch of other nights i don't know it just feels very safe to me in a way that even if the performances are very good it is not quite as revelatory as when it's a little bit more of an unpredictable set list construction yeah, I mean, again, we were saying this earlier, this is like not that jammy of a show. No. And even comparing it to like the 80s, I feel like the 80, like there's a lot of 80s periods that are jammier than this. You know, we're going to get to this later. Uh, we're going to get to it twice. They have the drum section, but, you know, there's no space Yeah, at this point. There kind of is in this show. Shows. We'll get to that. Well, sort of, but not to the degree that like when you get into like the late 80s, right. I, I, again, like, I think like late eighties is like some of the weirdest dead. Mm-hmm. Like there's some really weird things going on <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Like like victim or the crime. <laughs> like that is like some of the most out there music that the dead ever did. I don't care what anyone says. Yeah. But yeah, like this is again, it's like the it's the era. It's the you know, the, the dead were part of rock 
music and it was arenas it was getting people dancing and you know they were part of that mm-hmm. and i think you can hear that in these shows and, and truth be told like a lot people clearly love it you know there's been so many shows released from this period it's right. a very popular era of the dead even now so but yeah i agree with you like for me it does get a little it's not as exciting it's not so it's not really an era like i love revisiting as much as others mm-hmm. just for that three more discs to go <laughs> right and, <laughs> and disc two starts with another pairing very frequent in 1970 yeah which is estimated into eyes uh and we've even heard a couple of these already in dicks picks i think uh from not just 78 but later on they kept this this pairing together for quite a while this is a really good part of the show maybe the best part of this first show uh i think estimated sounds Excellent, even though it doesn't quite have sort of the keyboard weirdness that you get when Brent enters the picture about a year later. In fact, Heath is like non-existent on this estimated profit, which is very strange. <laughs> um, he checked out. Yeah, I was thinking about that estimated from Dick's Picks 5, uh-huh. which is early Keith. Yeah. I'm so, sorry, early Brent. Early Brent. And uh, that's great, like what Brent's doing on there. He's got that really cool synthesizer right when he joins, yeah. and it get, just adds like a really awesome flavor to it. Yeah, that's a great estimated. And But although the good, the good what Jerry's doing on this, I think, is pretty great. Like yeah. That, that, in, you know the, the the that big solo at the beginning that he does where it just bursts in and has so much energy when he can hit that one hard that's always a, a super exciting moment can i say too like is like his guitar sound like it's like the mutron right like, like a fact that he's putting on his guitar I almost feel like, is that the defining Grateful Dead sound? I mean, because obviously Jerry's tone normally is very distinctive. Right. But like before I knew the dead, like that, like, you know, that sound was like what I associated with them more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you might be right. Like, it's so distinctive. Like, there's nobody else that really sounds like that. And it's just a lot easier to kind of like... Call to mind in parody than oh, yeah. more classic Jerry Garcia tone, right? So it just sounds like hippies dancing. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like that 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 tone. Or a guy's playing hacky sack. Yeah. Know? Any any cliche you want to bring up right. about deadheads. It just sounds like that. The Mutron, I think, is sort of famously hard to play, like to to make sound good. Because it, it, it can sound really bad <laughs> if played poorly. It sounds, I think, like, you know, like Charlie Brown's teacher. <laughs> if you're not doing it the right way. Uh, I really liked it throughout this estimated. And I feel like he got really good at playing the Mutron. Maybe even better in some places than, like, the famous 77 shows. Like, uh, he is, he's got a really strong handle on it. Uh, 
in this era, I think, and you hear it throughout this jam, which is, you know, pretty much just like an elongated Mutron solo, but with some really good, like, classic Bob cording over it, and it's just like a cool, mellow jam, but it's not like 74 mellow. It's like sleazy, dark, mellow. It's got this kind of, like, skeevy quality to it <laughs> that, that 78 really brings out in the dead. wonder like if the peak of the song is with brent and not these late 70s or, or like the the pre-brent late 70s right. again like 79 into 80 um where brent can really because again keith seems kind of checked out at this point i mean he wasn't as checked out in 77 um 78 is where he's starting to really fall off a cliff but yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a good version, but he, yeah, definitely missing the keyboard part that kind of takes it to a different level, right. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go to Eyes of the World. <laughs> yeah. And uh, again, I got to get my J.K. Simmons. <laughs> not my tempo, man. I'm right. sorry. This was not... And it's funny because I mentioned this earlier. I did go back to Dick's Picks 18, which was two, three months before this these shows. And I wonder if I complained about the tempo of that at the time because after listening to this i listened to the dick's picks 18 and 18 actually sounded really good to me okay and it wasn't as frantic as this one which i appreciate the disco-ness of this i i I see what they're doing but i don't know this this is my favorite grateful dead song as i've said many times on this show and i'm very particular about it i think if you play it too fast it just takes the magic out of it yeah it takes the breeziness out of it yeah and i it it just i don't know i don't dig it as much when when it's too frantic yeah yeah i agree with that but i also thought like for the fast eyes that we've heard this is a pretty good one and i think it's all down to like phil and the drummers being really locked in you know, it's it's very disco, uh, but I also think Phil kind of, like, simplifies his approach a little bit, so it's not, like, Phil, constant bass solo Phil. It's more of, like, a pocket Phil that you don't hear very often. So I kind of liked it. I Like, I, I liked it better than I expected from, you know, hearing the tempo they set out to play at the beginning. I'm like, oh, here we go. This is the Koki 78 dead. But it, it worked all right for me. At the, and there you, you can even hear Keith a little bit playing some electric piano. Like, it's not classic jazzy eyes of the world but it's 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 pretty good for for the era and again if you're with me and you think this is too fast go to dick's picks 18 that's actually like a really good one it's a little fast compared to 73 74 right but it's not again like the uh you know studio 54 (laughs) you know uh piles of cocaine 
version that you're going to hear here. Um, after there, we go to the first 19-minute drum solo. <laughs> of, drum of duet. To be fair, it's a drum duet. <laughs> yeah, drum duet. Um, and you made a point about this in the notes, and I had the same feeling where it had a tribal apocalypse now yeah. kind of feeling to it. I'm going to say right now, Spoiler alert that I prefer the second drum solo, I think, to this one. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I mean, I kind of like them both, but it's just overkill to have two really long drums. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, ah, you're not going to sit through both all all that often. But um, they're kind of similar, too. Like, in a way yeah, that I think right. later on, drums was a lot different, very different from night to night, as they kind of they, they got more instruments in their big drum pit behind the stage and we're right. we're we're more into kind of like making it a unique experience every night these are kind of like they kind of follow the same like texture and the same blueprint i think though the second one is a little faster a little more urgent than this one which is what i like about the second one more the the speed of it and you know we mentioned apocalypse now we talked about this in our dicks picks five episode but, yeah uh, the rhythm devils they did music for apocalypse now and Francis Ford Coppola and his wife Eleanor Coppola saw the dead in October of 78. Eleanor writes about, she writes about that in her book Notes, which was a diary about the making of Apocalypse Now. Uh, and of course, she ended up like helping to make a movie about the making of Apocalypse Now, like in 91. Right. She's like one of the great making of docs ever called Hearts of Darkness. But anyway, she says that they saw the dead in October of 78, and they played a bunch of shows at Winterland that month. Mm. She doesn't say which show specifically they went to, because they lived in San Francisco. Right, so they makes sense. went to those shows. Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly which show, but they saw them in October of 78, and then that was around the time that they got involved, Mickey and Bill, with Apocalypse Now. So it was late in the process, because so. I was speculating that maybe this is... The, the long length of these drums segments might have been influenced by the fact that they were the recording sessions for Apocalypse Now would have been around this time. But instead, it's the other way around. That Coppola heard that. And he was probably like, oh, that would sound cool. I mean, because I remember we brought that up in our Dick's Picks 5 episode because that was that's a 79 show. Right. And I think they were they had, a, they had an Apocalypse Now type feel to the drums in that show as well. But that would have been closer to when the movie came out in, in late 79 so cool footnote anyway for in grateful dead history the apocalypse now connection from there we go to the to the other one and like it feels like drums takes up almost like a third of the other one <laughs> yeah half maybe yeah well so and earlier you said there's there's no space yet which is true i mean there's no space on the set list but this kind of felt like space for nine minutes because I think one of the right. drummers is still out there. Uh, they're still playing hand drums. They're kind of teasing that the other one is coming next. The rest of the band comes out. They play the other one lick a couple times, but very quietly. Uh, they really build up this tension for nine minutes of like, everybody knows we're going into the other one, but we're going to like stretch this out as long as we can. I think it sounds a little bit better on paper than it is in practice. <laughs> like, it's not my favorite. The other one, though, there is a really, really awesome part 
for like a minute between like nine minutes to ten minutes. The last minute before they fully blast into the other one. All of a sudden there's this really cool Jerry lick that they that he works on a little bit. Phil starts playing a cool bass riff, which actually sounded like something else I couldn't just quite name in my mind. But there's it, it, it seems to really look sound like it's steering in a totally new direction before it circles back really quickly to Bob's first verse. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very long lead in to the other one rather than just <laughs> dropping into it right out of drums. Yeah, this is like the jammy, I guess, section of the show. But we're going to eject from the jammy section now <laughs> and go into Warfrat. Yeah. And this reminded me, we've had this conversation before about the big second set ballads that Jerry would play coming out of a jam. And, you know, Morning Dew, I think, is the undisputed champion of those ballads. But we get like the two challengers. <laughs> in yeah. each of these shows you get Warfrat here and we're gonna have Stella Blue next and it was interesting for me to compare like which one I like more I don't know how you feel about this this is like a really good version of Warfrat I think I'm a Stella Blue person above Warfrat I would put Stella Blue in the second position behind Morning Dew mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how if you have an opinion on that or not but like this is a really good Warfrat but I, the Stella Blue that's coming moved me more I think yeah I think I prefer Warfrat to Stella Blue. I think Warfrat is more consistently my kind of thing. Whereas Stella Blue, I think it has higher highs when it really connects. But there's also a lot of Stella Blues that don't really do it for me. Warfrat, I think, is a really structurally interesting song, like lyrically. How it shifts perspectives, which always kind of fascinates me. And I think it has, you know, more of a gentle build that is maybe a little easier to pull off, whereas Stella Blue depends on a lot of loud, soft dynamics that some eras of the dead aren't really capable of doing as as well. See, I feel like we've heard Dick's picks where no matter what era it was, maybe the rest of the show wasn't that great, but the Stella Blue would kill. Mm. And I feel like that was a song that Jerry could always hit out of the park. I feel like Wharf Rat musically is a little boring, like, you know, like lyrically, I'm with you that it's more interesting. But musically, I mean, there's kind of like a Pink Floyd vibe to it a little bit, like how it drifts along. Mm-hmm. But, and I still like, I mean, I don't know, I, I said it was boring. I mean, I like Warf Rap, but like <laughs> Stella Blue to me just has a beauty to it. And I mean, they both build to like a guitar solo right. that rips your heart out. And the Stella Blue guitar solo to me is just one of the all time Jerry heart rippers, you know? And so I don't know. We'll talk about that here in a minute once we get to that show and then we wrap up with sugar magnolia of course <laughs> yet another sugar magnolia i mean it sounds that sounds good it's it's a betty board so you get some really good chunky fill 
the sunshine daydream part i think kind of irritates me a little bit and it's like 77 <laughs> 78 and i guess they kind of kept this around that like sort of start stop point sunshine daydream like that is like when i was talking about how like this is the closest we get to sort of like a vegas dead that's what a, a vegas dead would turn one of their songs into right like it's just uh well yeah and again this is another song where you're like if you're in the room mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure it played up, huge you're yeah. up you're dancing confetti flying uh, yeah. yeah and you know at least it's not around and around <laughs> although we'll, we'll get there i might have spoken yeah i've spoken <laughs> too early Now we're going to move over to disc three. Uh, this is the May 11th show. Right. This is the Mescaline show. Yeah. Supposedly. Do you have any feelings about which show you prefer? I think I definitely like the second show better. I think it's a lot more interesting. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. And it's it's very unique because of Mescaline or whatever was making them slap happy on this evening. I, w- I would guess from the tenor of the show that they didn't do the Mescaline or, you know, whatever they did until set break. Because the first right. set is kind of neither here nor there. There's some interesting stuff in here, but it's it's your pretty standard first set in general. Yeah, you know, I got to say, you know, I'm going to actually amend my statement that I just made about preferring the second show. Because honestly, I think the first disc and the fourth disc are my favorites. Okay. Like, I really like that first set yeah. from May 10th. I think it's better than the first set on May 11th. But, yeah, the second set of May 11th is better than the second set from May 10th. So, yeah, if you could mix and match, you'd have an ultimate show. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, the the early part of disc three, you know, we have Cold Rain and Snow, Beat It On Down the Line and Friend of the Devil. I don't know. A little sleepy here. I mean, I'm not – it's fine. I don't know if you have anything to say about these first three songs. No, other than, like, I was (laughs) – I, I looked up whether it rained or snowed on May 11, 1978. It didn't appear to, but the fact that they play Cold Rain and Snow opener and Looks Like Rain fourth and Lazy Lightning uh, at the end of the set, I'm going to guess there was storms in the in the region. It seems like... Or maybe there was like a drought. And we're doing some <laughs> rain dancing with this show, baby. They're like, hey, let's bring some storm clouds in. Yeah. You know, Looks Like Rain, I'm going to go back to my comment before about my regret that Bob and Donna didn't do like a Dead for Lovers <laughs> sexy duets duets record yeah like a, like a like a sultry like raising sand type record bedroom could have really nailed it yeah and again I've said this many times and I'll I'll stand behind it that looks like rain without Donna I think misses something mm-hmm. and Bob ends up maybe overcompensating for it. <laughs> By over singing like in into the eighties, which again, like there's something great about that too. Like the ham sandwich Bob. This is like a ham sandwich showcase for Bob. Yeah. But I think when he has Donna there, 
just that feminine presence it just softens the song and i think it really makes it blossom and then you have mm. that beautiful jerry guitar part at the end it's like the best possible version of this kind of song i think mm-hmm. okay let's talk about loser yeah because okay i had my rant was that dick's picks 10 yeah I think that was like a that was like a late seventy seven show. Right. Where I complained about the loser. I thought that was too fast and that the rhythm section screwed it up. And I think you disagreed with me. And a lot of our listeners disagreed with me. <laughs> Can we say that the rhythm section like fucked this song up? Yeah. Like they're playing a shuffle on this. <laughs> and it just takes away the pay it just I, I feel like there's a pathos to this song. Oh yeah. And a certain dignity to it, like when it's played at the proper tempo, mm. and it just makes that great guitar solo really pay off. And this doesn't have it. Like it just sounds weird to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a like a sad heartstrings pulling, desperate song. And what really ruined it for me is I realized a couple tracks later that they're using basically the same drum part on Tennessee Jed as they are on Loser. <laughs> and so, yeah, the Jed drums do not, it might suit Jed, but it does not suit Loser uh, if you're doing the no. same thing in both spots. So I agree with you on this one. And I think a lot of people would, yeah, maybe the drummers missed the mark here. There's also like our first appearance of weird growling backing vocals that I, I can't quite <laughs> identify who is doing it. I think it's Jerry in this at this point. I think it's somebody else later on we'll talk about. But it's sort of foreshadowing the fact that the second set vocal mix is going to get real weird so uh you don't get the stately loser stately serious loser here they're already kind of like taking the piss out of the song so yeah the growling is really weird (laughs) kind of lovable too i I appreciate the growling but there's yeah there's like a wolfishness going on here it must have been a full moon yeah exactly maybe we'll have some werewolves coming out later uh we'll see (laughs) next song minglewood such a 77, 78 song. Yeah. I mean, it's so, like, of this era. Obviously, they played it before this, but, like, I I feel like when I think of this song, I think of this era. Yeah. You know, and taking a shot of whiskey. <laughs> taking some whiskey shots right here. We we talked about it in the English Town episode. This is, like, premium Minglewood era. Something about the sleazy 77, 78 just really went well with stealing women's from their other men. <laughs> And Bob is growling big time on here, like the right in the lions doing that. Yeah. Little Wolfman Jack action or something. <laughs> From there we go to We got it again and it's uh yeah. It's not good. <laughs> this is not a joke. Pretty boring. Yeah. This Pretty is, boring. Yeah. Not uh not your interesting volume twenty four, Jed. This is a this is a dud. Weirdly, I I looked all over for this. They for some reason on this Dick's pick swapped Jed and Minglewood. Like it was it was actually loser and then Mexicali Blues Mama tried and then Jed then Minglewood is how it went on the night. Why in the world would they sw- switch tracks <laughs> on the uh, on the release? Doesn't make any sense. Maybe they wanted to preserve the Bob Jerry alternating. I guess that's the only reason to do it, but oh yeah, that that seems like as good of an explanation as I can come up. Yeah, with. but they violate that rule in the in the first show, so I don't know why why you would stick to that. But hey, why question David Lemieux? He knows what he's doing. <laughs> 
Now we go to Lazy Lightning and Supplication, which is another, I think, hallmark of this era. Yeah. This was really coming out from the Kingfish record. I should uh, shout that out. I feel like there was some episode where we didn't know that. <laughs> right. In an early app, and then like got tweets sent at us. Yeah. Like, the, for, like, the, the people who, who binge the show, like after the fact. Right. You get texts like a year later, or I'm sorry, <laughs> so you get tweets like, a year later. It's like, no, it's, it's on Kingfish. It's like, okay, we got it. We're still finding all the mistakes that we made. Yeah, it was Dix Picks 3, I think, that we, we goofed up. Oh, yeah. That's a controversial episode. Yeah. I feel like, uh, and this might be a controversial episode too, I wonder, because, I mean, I like Dick's Picks 3 a lot, but I think there's there's a lot of people who feel like that's like one of the greatest Dick's Picks ever. Mm-hmm. And there may be people who feel like this is like a really great Dick's Picks. And it's, as you can tell, it's like not in our wheelhouse necessarily. <laughs> yeah. We like this era. It's obviously a crowd-pleasing era, but... It's maybe not the most interesting. It's not Steve's tempo. It's not my tempo. Yeah. I liked hearing this just because we haven't heard it very much. It's, yeah. It's kind of fun to mm-hmm. hear it. But is this like, where does this rank in the great segues <laughs> for the Grateful Dead? Obviously, you have China Rider and Scarlet Fire. Right. Are the kings. And you have... Help Slip Frank. You've got Help Slip Frank. You've got Sailor Circumstance. Yeah. A little bit lower on the list. Weather Report's sweet. I mean, that's basically two songs. Bob O'Reilly, Tomorrow Never Knows. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. We'll get there. We're, we're almost there, yeah. <laughs> you're, teasing, you're teasing maybe my most anticipated Dick's Picks. That, you know, there's a, you're talking about Dick's Picks 27. Yeah. That, um, that, I'm, that's on my calendar with a big circle around it. I'm very excited for that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, this is, I don't know, I don't want to say it's at the bottom, but it's toward the bottom. Yeah. On the great, you know, Grateful Dead segue chart. I was thinking about how, like, I I sort of have a soft spot for Lazy Lightning Supplication. And I think part of it is that I got Dick's Picks 3 so early in my Grateful Dead fandom. And so, oh yeah, like, I kind of just assumed that it was, like, a pretty good Dead song. But also, like, there's a lot of Bob songs that irritate me because... I, I like the source material of the song, like the original version of the song. And then he just, you know, gradually hams it up more and more over the dead's career. Like looks like rain is a great example of it where looks like rain. The song when it first comes out is just this beautiful gem of a song, folk rock song. But then by the end, he's like, you know, hooting and hollering all over the outro to it. <laughs> he is, he is like mad at the sky. Yeah. He is dressing down the sky. Oh. He, that They're dude ranting he hates rain he hates rain so much um lazy lightning supplication it's like the hammy bob is like built into the dna of the song <laughs> in yeah. a way that i don't like begrudge it for taking you know some serious material and and making it real corny it's just a corny song from the start and it Again, like the Heaven Help the Fool era of Bob, where he is trying to like incorporate these slicker late 70s tropes into the Grateful Dead. I think like Lazen Lightning Supplication is a good example of that. And it's it's also not a, you know, this sort of classic Sailor Saint Bob segue pairing that is really sleepy and then really rocking. Like he's very predictable in that where he likes songs that start slow and build to a big rock finish. Like Lazy Lightning and Supplication, both sides are kind of rocking. So I like that. It Lazy Lightning isn't that snoozy. See, I like the construction from Bob. Yeah. I like the I, I like this the pretty beginning and the rocking ending. And I think it works. I I understand it's predictable. <laughs> 
but it works for me. I really like it. These two songs, I think, are fine. It kind of, again, I always get like a Santana vibe from these songs. It reminds me a little bit of Santana. It's got like a Latin rhythm to it a little bit, yeah. Exactly. So it's nice, you know, and it's interesting because we go from here, which, you know, I like these songs, but I think we can agree probably on the lower tier of Grateful Dead segues. And then we go to like the first class of Grateful Dead segues right after going into Scarlet Fire. Mm-hmm. And is it fair to call this like the best era of Scarlet Fire? I mean, it's certainly at the beginning. You have some iconic performances of Scarlet Fire from this time. Again, I feel like what's missing from this performance is Keith or any keyboardist with a pulse. <laughs> Yeah. You know, who could add that flavor to it. I was thinking actually of, was that Dick's Picks 13 where the hidden track is right. the Scarlet Fire? Yeah. from Is that from 80, I think? Mm, I think you're right, yeah. Or 79, maybe? That's like early Brent era, mm. and that's like a killer version of that. It goes like, for, that's like 40 minutes long, I think. Yeah. Not that everything has to be that, but I mean, this is like a really good version. I, again, I, I, I'm just missing Keith here. Yeah. I thought it was like a very solid Scarlet Fire, like not a not a classic by any means, but not a bad version either. Just kind of like your mean median version, replacement level version of Scarlet Fire. Uh, it's got a really cool. I thought the Scarlet Jam was really cool, and I think it's cool because mostly of Bob's effects that he's using. I think he got this really. He built up like a cool echo pedal or delay pedal effect to support his slide guitar playing. Uh, but a lot of times he'll play it with. He'll use that effect without using the slide. Uh, and this is a really obvious example where he's just he's playing like cool '70s Bob Weir chords, but with this really drippy thick echo on it, and it almost sounds like a sort of dubby, sparse Grateful Dead. Uh, in a way that I don't think of with Scarlet very often, like the famous, like, you know, Cornell or other 77 Scarlets, which are just like blistering Scarlet jams. This one really lays back, uh, which gives it a unique flavor. doesn't do it for very long and it kind of drops into fire pretty pretty rapidly i mean i think together they're about 20 minutes uh so it's not a marathon version it's actually only like 17 or 18 minutes i guess even but it's a pleasant variety Thank you. 
So now we're getting into disc four and things are getting trippy at this point. Maybe they've taken mescaline. <laughs> Maybe they're just full of beans at this point. We don't know exactly. They've just been on the road for five months. And... Yeah, just just feeling slap happy. I yeah. mean, look, if they if it wasn't mescaline, there was some other combination of to- intoxicants, yeah. I'm sure, at yeah. this point. Yeah. Less exotic than, than mescaline, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Can I say dancing in the street? And I, I think I've probably said this in a previous episode, that this is always, to me, the most surprisingly great jam vehicle for the dead yeah and i don't know why i'm still surprised <laughs> that i like this as much as i do but honestly i'll see this in set lists and i'll be like ah oh, dancing in the street like every single time and then i hear it and i'm like this is actually really cool yeah and no matter what era they're in they're always able to make it sound like that era and they, it changes like in surprising ways am i crazy to say that this is maybe the best performance from dick's picks 25 yeah or it's my favorite I would say it's like as far as improvisation, this is probably the highlight of the whole set. I think the jam really sparkles. And it is like full on sleazy 78 disco dead dancing in the streets. And they're clearly having a really good time performing it. And the crowd's eating it up. And then there's just like a really solid seven or eight minute jam after the vocal part. And then a probably too long vocal jam vocal hijinks <laughs> coded to it that maybe it takes away a little bit from it being the highlight of the set but i think like the I instrumental part of the jam is is probably my favorite part of the, the four discs i was good with the vocal jam just because i felt like their joy and enthusiasm was infectious yeah like the goofiness of it actually made it endearing to me and yeah, I mean, this is an example of them, you know, they're playing with a really rapid, coked up groove, but like they don't lose the plot. Like, I feel like it's still in the pocket mm-hmm. and it grooves like really hard. And yeah, I love it. It's a great combination of this playfulness that they have between each other, which is very apparent when you listen to the tape, mm-hmm. but they're also hitting their marks and it and it's really working musically. So yeah. Dancing in the street again. I don't know why I'm always surprised that I like it, but it it killed. I loved it, and the idea. This is a really good era for dancing in the street too. You know, again going back to the Donna Bob thing. You know, there's so many examples of them singing together on this song in this era where mm-hmm. they have great chemistry. Yeah, it really works well. Might be my favorite era actually of this song for the Dead. I mean, I love those like early '70s Dancing in the Streets too. Right. Like when Pigpen was in the band. But yeah, I love Donna in there and and the disco element. It just really works well. Yeah. It's a shame that the dancing in the street on Shakedown Street is so bad. (laughs) Because I I think it gives it a bad rap. Yeah. I mean, I think they just, they tried to like tighten it and make it super glossy. And you're just not going to get that same, the same sleazy vibes that you get from these live versions uh, in the studio, uh, even with Lowell George. It's embarrassing that anybody finds their way to the dead through their cover of Dancing in the Street, the studio version, when there's so many great live versions of it out there. So now we go to our second 19-minute drums. <laughs> and uh, I said this earlier, I, this is my, I prefer this drums. Yeah. It just, it seems more energetic. And it's almost like a Samson and Delilah beat for like, mm several minutes yeah we've talked about this in previous episodes like i'm okay on samson and delilah but like when the instances like where they've played that as an instrumental 
is like really great. And I don't know, I'm getting some vibes of that along with the Apocalypse Now tribal stuff right. that we were talking about earlier. They also start teasing Not Fade Away pretty heavily towards the end of the drums, which is cool and also kind of funny because they're pl- by the end of drums, they're playing some esoteric percussion instruments <laughs> and they're playing like the Bo Diddley Not Fade Away beat on that, which I think is kind of a cool effect. So just like... We've brought it really out there as far as like world music, the the entire global ecosphere of percussion instruments you can play. And then we're going to bring it back to the Buddy Holly trademark staple at the end of the song. So, yeah, we move into, a, you know, sort of a standard post drums segment here where you get not fade away out of drums uh, into Stella Blue. So... Now's your chance to defend uh, Stella Blue against the Warfrat. Well, I was going to say, like, I, if you can sit through the 19 minute drums, the Not Fade Away into Stella Blue actually has a really good payoff mm-hmm. because the power of Not Fade Away really shines through after you've gone through this psychedelic drums experience for the better part of like 20 minutes. Uh, and you really like the primacy of that song, yeah. Not Fade Away, after that. Like, it actually is like pretty, it, it, it makes a strong case for this progression that they would make in the second set. That, like you said, you go from this drum circle and outer space vibe to just gut level rock and roll. Right. Great juxtaposition. And then you, from there, you go into just this stunning ballad. And yeah, you know, I, I, I already did my Stella Blue spiel before and i'll just say here i think it it totally works beautifully and the solo i think as it often is is just killer Mm. Uh, jerry you know i know you said before sometimes you feel like stella blue depending on the era maybe it's too sleepy or they don't really hit the dynamics the way that they need to i think it's fair to say that they hit it perfectly Mm -hmm. at this moment yeah and i think this comes back to the thing about 77 78 dead being about as well rehearsed as they would ever be. <laughs> like they're still the seventy-seven sessions for the Terrapin Station album are still paying off. Like all the practicing that they had to do for that. So you're still getting the the tailwinds of a rarely polished band at this point. So, and then after that, the joint was jumping, going round and round, and it's the extra long version of a round and round to go with oh, the extra man. long Dick's picks, the one where they play it. Like, basically twice. (laughs) They play it slow, and then they speed it up to double time, and then they pretty much play it all over again. So this is like a double berry all in one. It's like a a double stuffed berry. And I don't have anything to say about this, because (laughs) and with apologies to David Gans and Gary Lambert, if you're still listening, which I'm sure you're not, (laughs) I I did bathroom break this song. I was like, no, hell no. I'm not listening to a round and round. So so I skipped this song. Right. Because I wanted to get to Werewolves of London. Yeah. It's a Warren Zevon song. Song. I love Warren Zevon, huge fan. I think it's funny that this song has a very famous piano hook to it. Right. And there's like no piano at all <laughs> on this. Or if there is, you cannot hear it. Yeah. Like on this version. You know, it's it's crazy. I had a hard time figuring out who was singing it. Yeah. Because and I guess it's Jerry, but he's doing something to his voice where I was almost like, is that Phil? Yeah. Like, I couldn't figure it out for a while. Like, I think it's just it. Jerry singing in a much lower register than he normally does. And, and it, yeah, you're right. It doesn't really sound like Jerry at all. I love that. Like, I think that 
that's one of the cool things about the Dead's cover of Werewolves, which they did a lot in 78. They did it nine times in 1978. And then I thought they played it like a, a whole bunch on at Halloween shows, but they actually did it at three Halloween shows, 85, 90, and 91. So it was those were the only other times they played it. Uh, this is the sixth out of nine times. I mentioned in the notes that the other kind of wild thing about it is that they were playing it as the song as Warren Zevon's version of the song was rising up the charts. Like it was a brand new song on the radio at this time and they were covering it. Uh, in fact, I think I figured out that the Zevon werewolves of London peaked on the charts the week of this show. It only peaked at number oh. 21 and it I thought it would have been a more popular song, but this is kind of like the first peak of werewolves of London's popularity. You can kind of hear it in the crowd too, that they're sort of like, they sort of recognize that the dead are playing it and they, they give it a little extra cheer. But it's funny that, you know, the dead would just play a hit song off the radio at the time that it was still a hit. Though I think it has some like history before that, right? Yeah, I mean, well, Warren Zevon, I think in general, he was like a songwriter, songwriter. So you know, it wasn't like he was just this pop troubadour. He wasn't like the John Mayer of his day or something. He just had a hit <laughs> and they're going to cover a song. You know, the, I mean... Zevon just had a way of like getting other people into his music. I mean, like his early records, you know, his, his first records produced by Jackson Brown. You've got like members of the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac singing on that record. Mm-hmm. The rock aristocracy just totally flocked to him. And right. that continued like throughout his career. I mean, Jerry plays guitar on a couple songs on Warren Zevon album called Transverse City which is like the weirdest Warren Zevon record, perhaps. I mean, it's like his cyberpunk record. <laughs> sure. Which is, it's like very weird. Some good songs on that record, though. Jerry also, on his own, covered Accidentally Like a Martyr, which is a very, like one of the more famous Warren Zevon songs. The War on Drugs cover it on their latest live record. And a lot of other people have covered it. And then Warren Zevon is on Dedicated, that Grateful Dead tribute record that we've talked about in recent episodes. He does Casey Jones, which is a very Warren Zevon choice yeah. to make. A uh, very prominent cocaine reference in that song, of course. Yeah, I mean, I like this cover. I like how ramshackle it is. Yeah. Again, it, it kind of plays into this idea that of this set where they're having a lot of fun. And this almost seems like a goof. Right. Uh, a little bit, but... They're, they're, they're having a ball playing it, and that comes across in the performance, and it just makes me like it right. more. Like, the lack of piano to me just makes me laugh, because it's like, Keith, come on. Like, yeah. This is a song Step for it up. you to shine. Yeah. I saw Long Cheney Jr. walking with the queen.
Well, as far as it being a goof, so Bob apparently came out with a werewolf mask on. There's a famous picture that I couldn't quite pinpoint whether it was from this show or not, but where Bob's wearing a werewolf mask and playing slide guitar. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll post that when this episode comes out for sure. You got Phil, who apparently has a mic. I didn't think Phil sang very much in 1978. Maybe he's using somebody else's mic. But Phil is growling and ad-libbing like crazy on this song. Uh, he's the one that does the werewolves of every of anywhere. <laughs> werewolves of, of everywhere line towards the end. Uh, he's doing some sort of like Ed Sullivan impression at the end of the song. <laughs> like he does or like he does like a thank you uh, very much and a good night uh, send off. They're all getting extremely wacky at this point. So yeah, it's like I feel like it's rare that you hear the dead having fun on stage. Is that weird to say? Like, well, yeah, or like, well, having fun in a goofy kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Which, which dare I say, this is more. This is kind of like more of a of a fish thing. Yeah. Than a Grateful Dead thing, because the Dead isn't really like a silly band. Right. Like they're they're a fun band, they're a party band, but they don't really get silly very mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. And they're getting silly on the song, and I like that. I appreciate they're getting silly in this whole set, really, and I really find that endearing. I like that a lot. Yeah, it makes it stand out for sure. And then we end with <laughs> with the second half of the Double Berry, right? Johnny Be Good, which you know, look, that's a fun song too. I'm sure that killed in the room. Uh-huh. I'm sure it was a lot of fun. That's all I'll say about that. I mean, it, it's interesting, I guess, that it was an entirely second encore. Like, they leave the stage after Werewolves of London and then come back for a second encore to play Johnny Be Good, which I think is also potentially a contributor to the Mescaline show reputation. Like, they were just having such a great time that, like, here's yet another. They couldn't leave the fans behind. They had to play one more song for them. And what else are you going to send them off with but a berry? So... Well, and again, if they were on Mescaline, why didn't they do like the twenty-minute Johnny B. Good? <laughs> this would have been totally the time. Trip this out. Yeah, that's why I'm sticking around. I already bathroom breaked around and around, so like I'm not leaving the show to get out to the car early. I'm like, they seem like they're kind of fucked up in the show. Maybe yeah. this Johnny B. Good. This is going to be like the dark star Johnny B. Good. Yeah, that was what I was hoping for here, but that's not what happens. It's just the regular Barry. But the Dark Star Berry, that'd be a pretty amazing berry. I don't know if that's out there. All right. Maybe someone can dig that up. We'll request that for Dead & Company this summer. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> up dicks picks 25 and uh we're looking ahead now to dicks picks 26 we're going back to 1969 yeah back to the 60s again and we're going back to the midwest and we're going back to both of our towns a show in chicago and a show in minneapolis yeah it's uh almost too bad this wasn't the uh the end of our season because we could have ended 
right back at home. The the Rob and Steve of 1969 would have totally done this tour. I, w- I would have actually been at home. I would have actually been at home because the second show's in Minneapolis. Right. So you would have had to, to drive back. Yeah. And I could have just gone back to sleep in my bed. <laughs> but uh, no, this is going to be good. I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I was just thinking about... But Dick's Picks 23, that 68 show, yeah. is like one of my favorites and uh, that we've done this season. I guess these shows are about like a year after that, like a little over a year after that. Right. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be fun to go back to the 60s, get back with Pigpen. That's right. Looking forward to it. So thank you for listening to this episode of 36 from the Vault. We'll be back with more Dick's Picks in our next episode. See you next episode. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of Thirty Six from the Vault is RJB. everyone i'm hal schwartz and i'm flynn mcclain together we host none but the brave a podcast dedicated to the music and career of bruce springsteen bruce and e street band are on tour right now for the first time in six years and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes we've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests including rock journalist warren zanes and stephen hyden backstreet's magazine founder charles cross and barstool's kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.